Hi, I'm Ben. And I'm Josh. And this is the Bad at Magic podcast, a podcast about games, life, and other things. And welcome to episode 92. Ben, we talk a lot about nuclear power being the thing that's going to save the world until we get to renewables. Yeah. But how how much do you know about how nuclear power is generated? I mean, I think I do. Um, You take take some kind of fizzle material and you create the conditions where it generates a lot of heat and then you use that to like boil some water use that to drive a turbine and that makes electricity i love that this is just the fanciest way that we've ever come up with to boil water because there's just (laughs) nothing that transfers energy better than turning water from a liquid to a gas and you are correct that is what these nuclear power plants are doing but did you know there's two methods there's two different types of reactor that have completely different designs in order to heat the water to steam no go ahead All right, so the first one, this is two-thirds of all nuclear reactors on the planet are called pressurized water reactors. Okay. And what that means is that the water that's inside is actually uh, in with the fizzle material, as you were talking about. It's all under intense pressure, and it's under such pressure that it can't ever turn to steam. It's just the the physical properties of the space won't allow it to. Instead, it just gets superheated. And then they circulate it through a heat exchanger which goes into a separate body of water that's completely you know, divided. Never, never the two shall touch. It's just the heat that gets transferred, and that's the water that gets turned to steam. So that water is not radioactive. Exactly. And then it goes through the turbine, and then it goes through another heat exchanger with a separate, a third body of water now that goes through the cooling towers that actually cools that water back down to a liquid before it goes back to the heat exchanger that's touching the fizzle water. So the giant cooling towers think the Simpsons that you see are just a big heat exchanger and there's nothing radioactive going on there. That's right. There is steam that is coming out of those, but it's a separate, like in a pressurized water reactor, that's a third body of water, completely separate that never touches the other two. And in the pressurized water reactor, the the radiation contaminates obviously the water with the reactor, but it never escapes out of that loop. It's all contained in that high pressure vessel. Okay. The other type of reactor is called a boiling water reactor, and it goes from three separate bodies of water back down to two. And so instead, the water that's in with the reactor is the water that's allowed to flash to steam, and that's what goes in through the turbines. And uh, then it goes through a heat exchanger, which is separate from the cooling towers again. So there's again, there's no radioactive steam that's being put off by the giant cooling towers. Which, this, which is newer? You said two-thirds are boiling, two-thirds are pressurized water, and one-third are boiling water. Like, are we moving t- away from one to the other? So here's the thing. Uh, I did not look up which one's newer, which one's older. But the pros and cons to these are all about um, cost, essentially, because the pressurized water reactor is safer. Um, the way that they design these, the reactors themselves, they'll have separate reactors that are smaller, and each reactor individually doesn't contain enough fizzle material to go critical or melt down. But at the same time, the the fact that it's a pressure vessel means that all of the engineering surrounding that, the the containing that water to make sure it never goes to steam, is much more intense. There's more material. Oh, yeah. That, that would be a huge explosion. That's what blew up Chernobyl. Exactly. That's what happened with Chernobyl. It was a pressurized water reactor that uh, the pressure that got went out. Went into meltdown and then the turned, water all was turned to steam, steam at once and huge explosion. Exactly. Yeah. But the but it's much safer, right? Because it's all contained. There's three separate bodies of water. The nuclear material or the radioactive material never gets into anything beyond the nuclear reactor itself and then the heat exchanger. Okay. The boiling Josh. water reactor has nuclear material or radioactive water that's actually going through a bunch of mechanical parts, like specifically like the steam turbines. So there's radiation that's exposed to a lot more stuff. But it's cheaper to make. Uh, yeah, well, I'd like to think we're moving away from the boiling water to the pressurized water. But Josh... 
What does this have to do with the number 92? Well, both of these types of nuclear reactors are powered, or they use uranium as the fuel for the fissile material that we keep talking about. Uh And the atomic number of uranium is, you guessed it, 92. Yes. Well, here on the Bad Magic Podcast, we're in favor of nuclear power as an option uh, to all the the world leaders that are now listening to the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, we're, we're putting all of our clout behind this. Give nuclear power another chance. Some of the things that we said on episode 91 of the Bad and Magic podcast resonated with our listeners. We got a lot of feedback. So there was one I got from a listener about something I'd never heard of before. And it's some other guy that had gone and created his own country, just like when we talked about the Principality of Sealand. Okay. This one is a lot less legit. It's called the Republic of Melosia. It's like five acres out in the Nevada desert east of Reno where some guy just like puts up a flag and wears a funny uniform and calls himself, wait, I got to read his actual title here. It's absurd. Oh, it's got to be absurd. If he <laughs> thinks he's going to take on the federal government of the United States of America and stake his claim for some worthless stretch in Nevada. His Excellently President Grand Admiral Colonel Dr. Kevin Baugh, President and Race Melosia, Protector of the Nation and Guardian of the People. That's, I mean, that's great that's so absurd it's fantastic i almost want to like refer to him as that (laughs) anyway it has a website it's like what if you and some but some smart buddies sat down and said let's make our own country all right what do we need to do they're like well we need a national bird a national park and you know they just made a list of everything and this website has all of that stuff oh my eyes just rolled so hard i almost passed out no if you're making a new country the first thing you need is uh, 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 government, like the first thing you yeah. need is like people and like a, an agreement, a body of people that agree that this will be an organized thing. Like there's you, a you, couple of shacks out in the middle of the desert, and they have like a cafe, but it's really just there, I think, to sell you stuff. It, this one, this one, as far as legitimacy, if I were to compare the Republic of Melosia to the Principality of Sealand, Sealand is legit. This is just like a, a curiosity. This is just some guy's project. I, I can't get off the idea like, oh, well, we need a national bird. Like that's just – that's so low on the totem pole for what you need for a functioning civilization or a functional organiza- organized government. I'm thinking of like tribal peoples tens of thousands of years ago grouping together for the first time and like trying to figure out a set of rules like, well, hang on a second. Before we talk about who's allowed to kill who, we got to figure out what our favorite bird is. <laughs> I, I don't know what order all of that happened in, but there's a sense of completionism to it all. Instead of just necessity, which is what you're talking about. Like if you were trying to build your own country, you wouldn't try to be like, all right, what are all the boxes we need to check until we feel like we're a legitimate country? It's what do we need to do? Yeah, that, that's me. That's a utility thing. Right. What is a country and how do I get there? Right. Not here's the checklist of things that so I can go to a party and be like, oh, well, I have my own national bird. Yes, well, and, and you can tell that they did this in the way you do like a game. We're like, all right, if we're going to play the make our own country game, let's do it all. Let's come up with our flag and our uniform and our song and and a partnering with another nation and all these things. It's silly. It's silly. It's Republic all. Yeah. It's Link all in the show notes. All fun and games until the FBI starts parking vans in front of your house. <laughs> <laughs> well, there was another thing you and I had said, Josh, that kind of resonated with one of our listeners, and that was we talked about the fate of the Hello Internet podcast. Okay. Yes. So Jim, one of my favorite listeners, he mentioned that he had been following the the Hello Internet podcast very closely and found Bad at Magic on a Hello Internet uh, thread in Reddit where someone had recommended us as a replacement once those guys went defunct. That might have been me. 
Or was it? <laughs> it might have been one of us that did that. Anyway, I love it. Whoever did it, what a great way to find the podcast. But he mentioned that he's kind of been following it, and he cited a few sources that seem somewhat legit. But, Jim, I got to say, I'm a bit skeptical. Like, I, I get that Brady and Gray haven't come out and made a public statement. Gray's just said, like, one or two things on his blog about how they're still friends. But I don't know. I, I, all the evidence that you cite on Reddit about what happened, how they just moved on, I'm, I'm not convinced. I'm, I'm, I'm still content to just let it be an unsolved mystery. So you went straight to talking directly to Jim as if you were in the middle of a conversation, and you didn't actually say what Jim said about the Hello Internet podcast. Uh, I can read it. What, give me a sec while I look it up. What do you think happened, Josh? I think we talked about this before. Uh, I personally think that it was an opportunity cost thing. Uh, maybe Gray got sick of Brady's random nonsense all the time. I, I'm sure that those were losing <laughs> money. Um, uh, he probably just had other projects that were going on that took up more of his time that were going to be a higher return on investment than the Hello Internet podcast. That's the only thing that makes any sense. Okay, here's what Jim says. He says, my own inference is that Gray crunched the numbers and determined that he makes more money on YouTube videos and determined he could make even more money by devoting more time to it. So kind of like you said, just strict utility. Absolutely. He says, I think he and Brady are still friendly. Brady referenced a gift that Gray gave to him on the Unmade podcast. I think they're just friends who decided it was best to do their shared what wasn't best to do their shared business anymore. I the two one of the reasons that the podcast was so good is that they had good chemistry because Brady is just this he he comes across as a squirrel with ADHD. And like he gets hyper focused on something and just goes at a full sprint as for until that thing is done. Whereas Gray is a very methodical, very structured, very rigid, very planner type person. And while that makes for good interaction, that doesn't make for a good business partnership. No, they were kind of uneven as far as like the release schedule and stuff like that. And I still feel like unless something bad had happened that they didn't want to talk about, why wouldn't they at least make one last episode and just explain that they were leaving? Uh, Is there any way to rip off that Band-Aid that would satisfy us? Is there any way to conclude season eight of Game of Thrones that would leave everybody happy? I don't think so. <laughs> That's a false analogy, but I'm going to allow it. It was a good one. Um, last time we talked, Josh, I mentioned to you that my family was going to go to Mardi Gras here in Shreveport, Louisiana. Yes, and I am dying to have you explain to me how your family walked away with what looked like 26 pounds of beads. <laughs> well, I got to tell you, some of the stereotypes that you believe about this are wrong, Josh. Here's all it was. It was just a parade at night with floats. The floats all followed a very uh, rigid theme where they tended to be what looked like about the size of a semi-trailer being towed behind a pickup truck. They had three tiers and on all three tiers of the people of the float were people dressed in some kind of themed costume and then they were throwing gifts off the cl- the the uh, floats which were generally strings of beads. Okay. I like my version of Mardi Gras better. Yeah, yeah, it, sure. I'm sure you can find that version somewhere. Uh, it, it's not in Shreveport, Louisiana. It was a fun parade. The kids had a good time. Um, we walked away with, and you asked who got the most. My, my, um, One of my daughters, I forget which one, she had like 78 strings of beads or something like that. Um, but all together, we came away with 420 strings of beads, which is absurd. Although I looked it up online and you can get 720 for 40 bucks. So it's we only came away with $20 worth of beads. But still, that's $20 worth of stuff someone threw at the, us off the back of a truck. I don't think you realize how perfect receiving 420 strings of beads actually is. 
<laughs> so nice. So we had 420 <laughs> strings of beads that got thrown off the back of a truck. And you know what, Josh? There's something so deliciously fun about having way too much of something. My <laughs> kids played with those beads all week like they were four years old. They spread them out on the floor. They counted them. They sorted them by colors. They made things out of them. Uh, they wore them like a skirt. They buried their sister in them. They cut them up into pieces so that they had all the separate beads and played with them. And my favorite one, Josh, is they took a whole bunch of them that were the same and they would cut them so that they were a string instead of a loop. And then they would tie them together so that they had about 40 loops together. And then they threw them off the balcony of our stairs. Have you ever seen the physical phenomenon called the chain fountain? Yes, I have, where the weight of the chain coming down on one side actually like lifts the other side up as yes! it's coming down. The, the Mardi Gras beads will do that if you throw them off the balcony. It's so cool. <laughs> so, one, that is very cool. Two, let that be a word of warning for all you Mardi Gras float people. When you have a bunch of beads and you're on an elevated position, don't throw too many at once. They will pull you off of the float with them. <laughs> <laughs> We're doing all kinds of physics lessons today here on episode 92, Josh. Love it. All right. Something else happened this week that's a little bit more somber, and that is I got kind of like the last nail in the coffin of my career. I know that's been, this is a train wreck that's been happening in slow motion, but this year is the time I'm being considered for promotion to Lieutenant Colonel the fifth time, which is technically the last time that I'll be considered. And my senior raider called me into his office this week and presented me with my promotion recommendation form, which is the thing where he writes on there whether or not he's giving his endorsement to me to push me for promotion to lieutenant colonel. Okay, which he didn't give you because why would he? Right, right. But it wasn't official until I actually sat down and he gave it to me. Oh, Ben. Yeah, like this was the last technical box that had to be checked that would end your Air Force career. But, buddy, you, you look me in the eye. You know. You know it was over years ago. It was. But I got to tell you something about this, and it's not about whether or not I believe it could still happen. But I like that we're calling up these emotions. A friend of mine who's been through the same thing says it's like five years ago we were engaged to be married. We'd sent out the invitations and then she broke off the engagement. And every year she calls me back and we go out for coffee. Oh, but then you were, yeah, okay. <laughs> but it's not, it's not meant to be, you know, she, and, and so here it is the fifth year in a row that she's called me back and we're like, maybe, maybe one more time. We'll just give it another look and see if it can work out. No, it's not going to work out. Stop calling me. It, 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 it was never going to work out like the, the way the culture and the way the system works. Like, you know, like after you missed the first one, maybe the second one, you, you had no more chances. But they don't let me refuse to participate it. When she calls me up and asks me to go out for coffee, I can't say no. This is I'm, again, I'm going to say warrant officers should be a thing in the Air Force. <laughs> anyway, I had to say that was it. But that wasn't even the most significant thing that happened to me this week, Josh. Well, yes, because uh, view, or listeners might not know this, but I, I actually get to see Ben when we have these podcasts. And Ben currently has a, a sling, and he's he's crippled. Like, it's obvious that he is less able than he was yesterday. So on Thursday, I went in for um, arthroscopic surgery on my left shoulder. Um, it, it, there's a weird cat and mouse game going between the surgeon and all the doctors and stuff and how much they're telling you because they want you to know the things you need to know to make the decisions that you have to make, but they also don't tell you everything. Well, I can see that quickly devolving into like a doctor having to give 
like a pre-med lecture to somebody like, yeah, you're working on. Yes, sir. I am going to work on your shoulder, but you don't need to know any of the details that I went to eight years of medical school to painstakingly memorize into my brain. You don't need to know all of that. You get to abstract all of that away and just let me handle it. Yes, but they don't like, for instance, uh, for two full days, I didn't know what what was underneath the bloody bandages on my shoulder because I wasn't supposed to take them off. I didn't know if they'd sliced a line all the way across, flapped the meat open, and done whatever they need to do and flap it shut. I knew it was arthroscopic, but he didn't tell me how many holes he was going to make. So I, it was just I thought Schrodinger's bandage. <laughs> I thought for arthroscopic, they take the arm clean off, and then they take it down to another department <laughs> to get it worked on, and then it comes back ready to be reattached. <laughs> that's as good as what I knew. So I went in on Thursday early in the morning and they'd call me the night before with the instructions, which is already a problem because they wouldn't give them to me in advance. They call me like it's a secret. They wait till the last minute and they're like, all right, here's what you got to do. Come in in the morning, wash with dial soap. Do you have any dial soap? I'm like, no. And you're telling me at 5 p.m. on the day before I'm supposed to do it that I have the wrong kind of soap. I'll, I'll take a shower, okay? They're like, yeah. All right. Don't eat or drink anything after midnight. Fine. I won't eat or drink anything after midnight. What am I, a gremlin? And they're like, all right. Now, be here at 6.30 a.m. Come and sign in with the insurance and then come upstairs. Oh, wear something that buttons down the middle. And I'm like, all right. So, you got me. I need to shop for uh, supplies. <laughs> and you're telling me the day before. Well, I mean, they're telling you to wear a shirt that buttons down the middle. But really, they're going to do the fire department thing. Like, if if you're wearing a normal shirt, they're just going to cut it right off and not think twice about it. <laughs> but they were talking about getting dressed afterwards, which well, is fine. stupid. Because when you get there, they're like, all right, take off everything but your socks. I was like, okay, <laughs> at least my toes don't get cold. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, you got that, ni- that nice flappy gown with the with Yeah, the so I stripped down to the flappy gown and they laid me on the thing. And then the, the nurse comes in. She's like, okay, you're going to get a block on your shoulder. And I was like, what's a block? And the doctor hadn't talked about this. So I had this weird moment of cognitive dissonance where I didn't know what it was they were talking about. I was imagining some kind of physical apparatus. Okay. Like uh, some kind of wooden thing or plastic thing that held me stationary or something like that. The normal thing that comes to mind when you hear the word block. Yes. And, And I came to find out later when the anesthesiologist came in and started explaining things to me that they were talking about something akin to like an epidural. Oh, okay. So just kill all the nerves in your whole arm. Yes. And he told me it was going to last for 11 to 12 hours, which was oddly precise and completely wrong. Um, <laughs> so can't, It can't be both. I knew already I was going to have general anesthesia, as in be unconscious for the operation, but I didn't know they were also going to do some local numbing. And there was another surprise procedure that they didn't tell me about that I'll save till later. So... They, you know, they start prepping me up. They take me up. They put an IV in my hand so that they can deliver the drugs that will render me unconscious. And the doctor gets starts getting out these really wicked looking needles. The anesthesiologist, and and he tells me that they're going to start applying the nerve block to my arm. And he comes and stabs me in the neck a couple of times. He didn't like me using the word stab, but I don't think there's any more accurate word to use regarding needles. Uh, so I'm not a fan of needles. I'm getting legitimately lightheaded listening to you <laughs> describe this. Uh, okay, sorry. I'll try to take it easy. So my arm goes completely numb, like like dead. Like when they told me to move off the hospital bed onto the onto the operation table, they asked me to pick up my arm and bring it with me. <laughs> like I had to reach over and grab it and lift it up and bring it with me onto the table. <laughs> that must have been a, a weird experience. Yeah, it kind of was. So and then I lost complete and utter cognizance of the passage of time. I think I think you know that like when you sleep or when you dream and you wake up, you're kind of aware that time has passed. Like okay. 
you 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 feel the passage of time. But I completely lost track of time. Like there's just a block of time where I have no idea what happened. That that I kind of experienced that when I had my wisdom teeth taken out, where they put the thing on my face, said count backwards from a hundred, even though you only have to count backwards from four. <laughs> and then I remember you should say that. <laughs> I remember saying ninety nine, ninety eight, and then waking up in a wheelchair in the hallway on the way out. Yeah. So it was like that. I woke up with my wife and immediately had the overwhelming sensation that I needed to pee. That was the most important <laughs> thing on my mind. That's because they had been pumping you full of liquids IV the whole time. And the nurse comes in and she's like, are you all right? I'm like, I got to pee. And she's like, oh, yeah, well, during the operation, we gave you a catheter. I'm like, why? <laughs> <laughs> Just go ahead and pee. <laughs> so I tried and it w- and it felt like a urinary tract infection. Just like... <laughs> utter and complete burning and i could not get the sensation going that was terrible i won't talk about that anymore <laughs> just wet the bed it's the most natural thing in the world. <laughs> it, but it hurt and that part wasn't numb oh. so for like a day and a half my arm was completely dead like i couldn't move my fingers it was just like this dead appendage on the side of me it was still the right color though <laughs> yeah yeah it was still the right color but it was it was like if they hadn't told me they were applying this nerve block, I would have thought like they'd severed the main nerve to my arm and I was never going to get to use it again. <laughs> it was that dead. Did your kids come and like poke you like for the whole day? Because I would have. <laughs> no. Okay, Josh. My, I think my kids have even still, maybe yours do too, the, the superhero dad thing hasn't died yet. So seeing Aww. me be vulnerable and and injured is is kind of a hard thing for them. Okay. Oh, so, they were sad that dad got hurt. Yeah, yeah, like that. Like, oh. they're not going to come poke me. They're not curious about it. They're kind of like, oh, dad's not invulnerable. Did you set a good example by, like, laughing it all off? Like, ha <laughs> <laughs> Nothing can keep me down. So the first day was just this fog of, like, nausea and, and, and numbness and drugs and stuff. The second day was, like, 100% better, and today I'm feeling pretty good. So we finally took the bandage off. I had three holes and, uh, like, eight stitches and it doesn't no visible bruising on the surface i'm starting to get some movement back it's looking good i think i'll be all right so here's a question do we prefer the weird chemical narcotic over like like having to get over this weird chemical hangover thing that you experience for like a day day and a half of your arm feeling weird and your body not feeling great or would you rather have like gone through the procedure just biting down on like a strap of leather with a couple of burly dudes holding the rest of your body down from flailing um does it feel like as a society that we've decided that we already know the answer to that question and we don't give people the option? <laughs> I would like to go through this procedure without any anesthesia. Like if you had asked that question, like that is the your doctors role. would decline professionally. Oh, absolutely. 100%. They're, They're not because they couldn't do it, but because they would absolutely refuse to accept the professional liability. Yeah, they wouldn't they don't they wouldn't want to do it that way. Because if I'd been awake and they'd start trying to apply a catheter, I'd be like, hang on, I went to the bathroom before this started. Let's just stay away from that particular appendage for the time being. We don't need to bring that into this. This goes back to like the doctor not wanting to explain hundred percent of this to you because you're not a <laughs> to them, you're not a person. You're the product. You're the car in the shop that needs to get worked on. You don't right? want to have a conversation with the car. They just want to get the work done, ship you out of the way so they can get started on their next job. Which is why it's so important, I think, to get their their agreement in advance about what it is they're going to do. I don't know if there's a way for you as the patient to hold them accountable for what it is they told you. But there was one particular aspect of this. My physical therapist would tell me, all right, 
There are certain things they can do arthroscopically that you'll recover from relatively quickly, but if they determine there's an injury to your rotator cuff or your biceps, and they do this one particular procedure, it's going to knock you out 6 to 12 weeks easy. Ooh. And so I was, I told my doctor on no uncertain terms, I'm like, I don't care if you get in there and I have a bicep tear, don't repair it. I don't want you to do that. Right, because you, you want to be able to fight the good fight and go deploy. Right, I want to be able to deploy in June, and, and that would have guaranteed I wouldn't be able to do that. Josh, have you ever gotten a passive-aggressive note from one of your neighbors? A passive-aggressive note from one of my neighbors? Um, no. Actually, I don't think I have. So this week, my daughter's car got a, there was some paper underneath our windshield wiper, and it was like a copy of the, the um, Homeowners Association covenants, and it was, certain lines were highlighted. <laughs> okay, well, now hang on a second. I have gotten several HOA violation notices, but those are like official bureaucratic oh, you, things. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is, I think the HOA doesn't care, but the neighbors care, so they, they did it this way. It's like, oh, just as a friendly reminder that you're violating the HOA rules by leaving your, your crummy car out on the street overnight. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Crummy car on the street overnight. Well, the note that you should have wrote, you should have flipped that piece of paper over and wrote, at least I haven't totaled your parked car yet and put it onto their car. Yeah, that's definitely that 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 moves out of the passive aggressive into the just plain aggressive. Um, we don't know who wrote it. We don't we don't know who put it there. This is an unfortunate situation for us to be in because we're not going to be here that much longer. And I don't bury any ill will towards any of my neighbors. We've been here for two years. We've parked a car in that spot for the whole time we've been here. That the fact that they finally started putting this on there either means we've been bugging them the whole time and they finally couldn't take it anymore. Or we've inadvertently done something to offend them and they're escalating. Or the HOA got a new enforcement guy that's driving around and Ooh. informing people of their notices. Josh, their that's why I tell you these things, so you can help me tell myself a better story. I like that one. <laughs> Maybe it wasn't any of my neighbors. Maybe it was an HOA enforcement guy driving around the neighborhood informing people. You see, there you go. So now, obviously, the solution— uh, That's nice. Well, just start parking the car in the front, in the front lawn. Just like no, I don't have to look around angrily at my neighbors and wonder who wants me gone. Oh, you should you should still do that. No, it's just rando HOA guy. I no, I love this. That's all I'm doing from now on. It was rando <laughs> HOA guy. That's who did it. It's it's the man. And now, what's even more delicious about this is uh, it's a game theory thing now, right? So if your neighbors come over and you talk to them, it's like, oh, can you believe the HOA left me this totally passive aggressive <laughs> note of my car? Freaking HOA, screw those guys. Am I right? And then like elbow bump them, and then like they have to agree with you or fess oh, yeah, up that it was of them. Of course. <laughs> That's beautiful, Josh. <laughs> oh, I love it. I can't wait to tell Alicia. All right, so I have a bad at technology for you, Ben. And by a bad at technology for you, I'm calling you bad at technology. <gasps> oh, Say it isn't so. Don't gasp at me. You, <laughs> I loved, loved the way that you prefaced this because you text messaged me as we do throughout the week. And the first message I got from you in this particular thread was, I want to tell you something, but I need you to suppress your initial reaction. <laughs> because I knew what it was going to be. Yes. And, and I, was, I was thinking to myself, like, well, Ben knows me, and he probably knows I'm going to make some kind of crass joke if it's something about, you know, whatever it could be. Like, all right. So I'm assuming that he, whatever the first thing that comes to my mind, I'm not supposed to say that. And then you admitted to me in the open, on record, as using Microsoft Edge as your default web browser. Okay, and what was your thought there? <laughs> what was the one you had to suppress? I literally, like, 
when I read that, I turned my head to my wife and I said, Ben told me to suppress the first thing that I said. And it's a good thing that he did because I would have blown him up over this without <laughs> having anything else to say. Like, what? So, y- yes, then we talked about some quirky thing that's happening with Microsoft Edge. We can talk about that later. Okay. But, but, but why? Why? I don't. I, how many times do I have to rail against Microsoft web browsers on this podcast? And this entire time, you've been sleeping with the enemy behind my back? Can can I make a case for capitalism here? Will you allow me to do that? A case for capitalism? Yes. Uh, I, I'm uh, sure. Yes. I know that you like to pretend that the final result of the browser wars has already happened, and that there is nothing, no further entries that could be made in the annals of browser uh, software that could potential that could possibly change the outcome. But I would like to present to you, Josh, that Microsoft Corporation is hungry to regain some of the market share that they've lost, and they're doing some meaningful advancements. Uh, 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 okay, my immediate reaction is to want to argue with you about the motives for such a thing, but but go ahead, make your case. I, oh, I won't argue that their motives aren't to, just to get more of our money. Uh, that's fine. Like that's the reason Google did it too. There's no, there's, yes, there's no impurity there. Um, but Microsoft has recently started doing some things that I like that have made it useful for me to use the Edge browser, and they are about to do another huge one. You know how you and I have been talking on this podcast about ChatGPT and how you said it's the best plain language interface you could possibly have. Microsoft is about to release a an AI that's linked to your identity that will utilize information it knows about you to act like to basically weaponize a live <laughs> artificial intelligence for your search preferences for Bing. Basically, Microsoft Bing is going to become ChatGPT. Well, that would be useful. enabled to the internet. Um, that would be useful if Bing was worth like anything. I get it. I get it. You want to say, I know everything I possibly need to know about Bing. I could never learn anything new about Bing. Bing could never improve. Bing could never change. Bing could never become better. That's why they renamed Internet Explorer to Edge because people had that mental block to think that there couldn't be new software, that there couldn't be improvement, there couldn't be advancement. Well, because for the longest time there wasn't. And it was just annoying and cumbersome and too big. And like there, there are... I have never used Microsoft Edge. Um, I feel like I've already made my decision. I'm firmly over in the Google Chrome category. However, having this discussion with my wife, like making fun of you for using Microsoft Edge. <laughs> Did she pile on? Her response was, oh, Microsoft Edge is the worst. And then she told this <laughs> very elaborate story about how there are certain things at her work that require her or that they tell her, the IT department says, like she was having problems accessing her webmail, and the uh-huh. I, she calls IT, and IT says, "Well, what browser are you using? Uh, Chrome, duh." And they go, "Well, it's only guaranteed to be compatible with Microsoft Edge, like all IT departments do for large uh, yeah, enterprise yeah, organizations." The Air Force does that all the time. Yeah, and so she was forced to use Microsoft Edge for specific uh, utilities, and so she had the browser window open, and she was telling me nightmare stories of how she would attempt to search for simple things using Microsoft Edge the way that you would use Google Chrome. And Bing was just so horrible at everything that it was delivering to her that her workflow had turned into, I have Microsoft Edge for this thing only. And if I have to do anything else, I have to go over here, open a separate browser window that is Chrome and actually get the useful tools that I need. Yeah, I get that. And and I don't deny that. There's this, there's this segment of improvement that I think falls outside of our realm of, of comprehension. Like, 
if you if I used a browser every day and you came to me and you were like a, an engineer for Google and you said, you use Google Chrome every day, Josh, what would you do to make it better? Do you think you could come up with a meaningful suggestion that they could change that would improve it? I think I could. I think there are several like like very niche cases, I think, in, in, in for me specifically. I mean, I remember the thing that happened with the autocomplete, but you said they fixed that. Yes, they did fix the autocomplete with the tabbing through. I don't know. I think there's um, opportunity to to improve the way that we navigate with tabs. I don't know. I think there's a way that we could potentially group tabs into groups. Like I, I know this on my phone. Google Chrome will split tabs into two different things where I can have separate tabs and then I can have one tab that incorporates multiple tabs, which is convenient because especially right now, this is so random we're talking about this, but I'm trying to brew a new commander deck. And so I have multiple Google tabs open on my mm. phone of my normal things that I'm constantly looking at. And then I have one tab that has right now 18 tabs open of different cards that I want to try to incorporate into this deck. So it's nice to be able to compartmentalize some nonsense things like that. Right. So you don't want to close them because you're still working on this. But you also need to just something random happens in life. You need to open up a browser and not be weighed down by those 18 tabs worth of cards that you have open. Yeah, exactly. And I have three other tabs that I keep open to keep my eye on other things. And I don't want the 18 making it difficult for me to navigate to those yeah it's weird how there's like some vested um energy uh, uh, in that those tabs like the, the time it took to search and get to the right page and stuff and just having that open it's like losing your place in a book if you were to yeah it's just convenient to have them open and the tool the way that it works on my phone gave me a, a little extra utility and that i can i can organize it that way and keep it all straight so there's a group of people out there, some that focus more on the user side and like how people use it and the way they interact with their things. And then there's software engineers out there and those two guys get together and they're like, hey, we want to do this. And like, well, that's hard or whatever it'll take. And they come to an agreement and then they make a change. And sometimes the users resist it like they, it's not intuitive or it's hard to do. And sometimes it works and it catches on. So this week I had opened up Microsoft Edge for something and I noticed at the top of the screen along the tabs there was something that had automatically grouped the tabs and it hadn't just grouped them, it had applied a label to them. Okay. And did the only you, reason you get to pick that label or is it just random? It as far as I can tell, it happened automatically because I was doing research for my seminary lessons and it said religion. Oh. So you said a, a group of tabs that said religion. Yes, and I hadn't applied that tab to them, so I realized that Microsoft Edge had made a determination that the web pages I had that I had navigated to related to that information were religious in nature, and it had shown that and grouped them together as religion tabs. Well, then now, that's, them, that's kind of annoying. How would you, like, if it put all the tabs together, how could you quickly switch back and forth between them? So it didn't. It just showed a tab group, and then you can choose to collapse the tab group. Okay, so then if you so kind of like what I was doing on my phone, if I at any point decided I was done brewing this deck for a while, I could collapse all those tabs into one group and then go on with the rest of my life. Yes. Okay. okay. And and it color codes them, and it's nice. It's it's a legitimate improvement. Like if I was going to be doing like a research project where I knew I was going to have forty tabs open, I would choose Microsoft Edge over Google Chrome for this feature alone. Okay. Um, so then I started wondering, where did it get that information religion from? Like, how did it make that determination and what else might it do that about? So if it was Google doing that, I would assume that it was doing it based on the content of the pages. But since it's Microsoft, I'm going to assume it's off some archaic, like flag in the metadata from years and years ago somewhere. Yeah, I still. I've done some experimentation. I didn't actually search the feature itself, but I still don't know for sure. 
Okay. okay, so so you're right about how Google's revolutionary thing they did in the search industry was to try to make it that their algorithm actually reflected people's behavior and, and the real content of the pages rather than this stockpiled metadata hidden in the background that would weigh down the search engine in their favor. Okay. Those were the bad old days of the internet where like, the you know, if you looked at the HTML code for a web page, it was like five pages of just repetitive uh, meta tagging, yeah, stock a, meta tags. There are still companies out there that swear up and down, oh, for search engine optimization, we're going to completely trick out your website to make sure. Shut up. Shut up. Doesn't work that way anymore. And it hasn't for years. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't actually know where it got this from, but I tried it with a few others. So I did, I opened up a few websites like CNN and the New York Times, and it created automatically a tab group news. Okay. That wasn't unexpected. Um, I Because we talked about it recently, I opened up your site VG Cats. Oh. That was that old comic. Yeah. And it gave the tab group cats. Definitely not cats. Which made me think that how many websites could I have open that it would automatically classify into that group? Like people are searching the <laughs> internet for cats. That's what the internet is for. I mean, a lot of the internet is just cats. Amazon.com, it gave me shopping. You uh, expect that, yeah. I went to a site called ZDNet and it gave me technology. But then I went to another technology site called CNET and the tab group it automatically gave me was online dating. Ooh, oh, saucy. No, no, go to CNET.com. It has nothing to do with online dating. I've nothing. Been to, I, I've been to CNET.com. I know what you're talking about. Yes, it's a tech news site. So that one threw me off, and now I don't know anything. All right, so here, here, here is a very serious question that could make me switch to Microsoft Edge if you answer it in the right way. Okay. If Microsoft Edge detects that I'm doing browsing of an adult nature, does it group the tabs and put me in an incognito mode to like expunge my, my search history and all that? I wouldn't know. I dang it. <laughs> well, I'm not gonna. I'm not downloading Microsoft Edge to experiment. <laughs> don't you don't you use Microsoft Windows? It's on there by default. Did, can you remove it? Did you remove it? I don't know. Did I? Let me let me see. Uh, I, you know what? As soon as I type Edge, it, oh no, yep, there it is. Microsoft recommended browser. Screw you, Edge. You see, <laughs> this is this is part of the thing. All right, so I will say that a non-zero amount of the reason that I hate Edge. Is is the the energy residual and, like, hate you have for Internet Explorer? <laughs> not just Internet Explorer, but the 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 amount of effort that Microsoft goes to to uh, shove it down my throat. Yeah, I don't know how they could ever overcome that with you. Every but let me every three weeks when I boot up my computer, it goes into like, oh, let's set up Windows. I'm like, screw you, Windows. You have been set up for more than a calendar year now, and it says, oh, it looks like you're using some other browser. Microsoft Edge is a wonderful browser. You should oh, no. set this I, as default. I won't default. deny any of that. Like, why is Windows going into a setup mode to try to make me switch browsers? That so there's seems... an interesting corporate thing going on. There's like a marketing team that's like, how can we get people to switch? And then there's a development team that's like, how can we make this thing better? And I don't necessarily think that their strong pushes to get people to move come along at exactly the same time that the big improvements happen. So there is a chance that they'll just try to get you to switch at a time when it hasn't actually improved. But there is a chance that they could. Let me ask you a question. Completely okay. hypothetical. Okay. Let's say that somewhere along the line, the engineers make the right adjustments. They've improved under the hood so that the browser performs better. They've improved the interface so that it's easier to use, and somehow it actually becomes the better browser. Are you willing to switch, or are you just not willing to consider that? If it was objectively better. like for It would have to have... 
It's not only that, but now there is a cost to switching, right? Because all of yes. my profiles are saved in, in Google. All of my passwords are there. Like, it, it, there's enough vested that there's now uh, some amount of inertia that they yes, would need to overcome. it's the Apple ecosystem problem. Yeah. Well, so if they had a killer feature set that released that was able to overcome that, like, gave me legitimate capability that, that Chrome didn't have – and allowed me to set specific things that, that are that are must-haves for me. For example, whenever I type into your address bar for a search, I'm never wanting to use Bing, Microsoft. Just get that through your head. That, like There are things that they could do, yes, to overcome that. But I'm saying it's beyond just adding uh, N plus one features from Google Chrome. It's got to be more than that now. Yeah, I get that. And unfortunately, some of the kind of stuff that users want that would make that change worthwhile are the kind of things that make you inherently suspicious. Like if I'm going to have a mobile <laughs> device and my desktop device and, and the kind of features I want are like, well, I want to find browsing something on my mobile device to be able to look at the same browser session on my personal on my laptop. Well, in order to do that, I've got to log in to it on my mobile device and log into it on my desktop so that it can maintain my identity continuity. I mean, which I mean, I do. Like Google lets me do that now. Yeah. Well, with specific things, not actual browsing uh, thing, uh, sessions and all that. But I, I get what you're saying. Okay. Well, Can, if if you always want to be right, you have to be willing to change your mind. I am willing to change my mind, but Microsoft's got to overcome my inertia is what I'm saying. I get that. And, and like you said, you need enough inertia to overcome also the vestment that you have in the legacy environment. While I'm still somewhat outraged by the idea that Microsoft is trying to shove this browser down my throat. Can I do a quick me against bureaucracy? Oh, yeah. This will be a short one. This is more less of a against bureaucracy and more of a complaint about a specific type of bureaucratic decision that drives me nuts. Okay. All right. And so I'm going to go down a rabbit hole for just a second, but I have to explain the circumstances that gets me riled up for this. Um, so I am an accountant in Arizona. And in Arizona, we don't have sales tax. We have TPT, transaction privilege tax. It's exactly <laughs> the same as sales tax, but we call it something different. So we can say, oh, we don't have sales tax, but we do. And part of my job is I have clients, businesses that are that collect sales tax and they have to pay it back to the government. And there's a report that you have to fill out. And you have to send it off to the Department of Revenue and you have to send the check to them. Okay. I think you mean transition privilege tax, but I knew what you meant. Oh, I use the terms interchangeably, frankly. Okay. So part of this uh, this whole system is that if you file online your your TPT report, like if you're a business and you're giving your tax to the state, if you file the report online and you do it timely, that you is get, a terrible euphemism. <laughs> you get what's called an accounting credit, which reduces the tax you have to pay, you have to pay, by 0.0672%. So, like, it's a minuscule number in most cases. Like, I have clients that put tens of thousands of dollars that they pay to sales tax, and they'll get, you know, 50 or 60 bucks off for doing it online and on time. Okay. Here's my problem. On the page, on the site that you go to to fill out this form and process it and get all this stuff, it has the box. It says, you are due or you are owed an accounting credit of 0.0672%. Enter the amount here, and it has a blank box for you to enter it into, okay? And on the surface, first of all, if you know that I'm due this credit, why wouldn't you just auto-calculate it for me? That's fine. Maybe they didn't take the extra step to actually calculate 
what the credit would be. They just want me to do the quick math, put it in the box, and just go forward, okay? Maybe this is a really stupid website, and it's just filling out a paper form in the back. I don't know. But this is what really triggered me, is one time I had, uh, it was fractions of a cent that was going to this accounting credit, and I rounded it up. It was 0.678 cents or some nonsense, and I rounded up to the next cent, and I put it in the box, and I clicked Submit. And the page threw an error and a pop-up box came up. It was like, you are only owed an accounting credit of this. And it gave me the number with the cents rounded down, one cent lower. That, I was so mad at the website because you're doing the math. Like, you're clearly, one, you know that I am do this because you can check the date. I so know they how can just put work. it up there, but they're making you type it in and they're checking that you did it right. Yes. The Isn't are, that the whole point of taxes? Ben, no, no, no. This is what drives me nuts. It's like... I am do this. You acknowledge that I am do this because I'm doing everything right. One, the criteria is just the date that I am doing this report. You can check the date because it's a web page and I know how computers work. It knows what date it is. And if you're already doing the math in the background anyway, the only reason that you would not fill out the box automatically is because you, the state of Arizona, have made the deliberate decision to try to steal that 0.0672% from your taxpayers. That's what oh. it's. I, the, I, they won't I, let you put one cent more, but if you don't fill it in, then they just keep it. Exactly. Uh, that to, sucks. To me, yeah, it's, it's, it's a petty amount. It's an inconsequential amount, but... I honestly feel like that's theft. And like, if this is a large enough organization, you have smart enough people that like, you can easily figure out if this should apply and just apply it, but you don't. And that's a decision on your part to actively screw the people that are using your system. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to talk about this more <laughs> as this goes on. <laughs> All right. You sent me something this week about something called skewomorphs. Let's make this a bad at technology. We're going to do bad at tech on skewomorphs. This was a really interesting thing you sent me. I All right, so I can't take credit for this. My lovely wife comes across things. I She found it on Twitter. I'm not on Twitter. She browses Twitter for whatever reason, forwarded it to me, and I'm like, this is right up Ben's alley, and I immediately sent it off to you. Yeah. Okay, so we've talked on this podcast before about what are called fossil words, as in words in the English language that we use because they are embedded in a phrase that we don't use on their own. Okay. Yes. I can't think of an example now off the top of my head. But <laughs> How, why would you bring up fossil <laughs> phrases and not have a fossil phrase to bring up? So you can't do it. Well, this is the same idea, but with iconography. As in, we all agree at some point that we need an icon to represent something, so we just use one. Like, for instance, a little woman in a dress to represent the female bathroom. Yes. Now, like, women don't have to wear dress. The formal, the normal attire for women hasn't been dresses for like a hundred years now. Right. But no. And, well, sometimes people take issue with it. But generally, we just accept that that's the the icon for that because changing it would be more problematic than just letting it be. Well, and, and that's the thing. It's been adopted from an earlier age, and it's just so accepted and a part of the culture now that the icon is it's almost completely separate from what it originally came from. Yeah, and now it's it just, just stands more important for its own that thing. we have a common understanding of meaning rather than accuracy. And so that's what this is. A skewomorph is when something takes on the appearance of the thing that it replaced in technology just because like that's what they chose to use to represent it back in the day, and now you can't change it. Yeah. So the example they give in the tweet that you sent me is a three and a half inch floppy disk. 
which is which is a long slice of time in the his, in the short history of computers, but still uh, it, it's defunct and it there was a time where it didn't exist pre and post. But we no longer save things onto three and a half inch floppy disks. The last time I had to use a three and a half inch floppy disk was in two thousand and seven or two thousand eight when I built my second to last computer. I had to have some kind of firmware update, and I could only get it on an A drive. Yeah. Yeah, I think the last time I used a three and a half inch floppy disk was for the government. Like I had to get my security clearance <laughs> renewed and they made you save it on a three and a half inch floppy disk. I'm surprised they didn't make you chisel it into a stone tablet. <laughs> yeah. So if you start to look, these things are everywhere. Like, did you find other examples of them? Yes. So the easiest one, easiest, is look at your phone and look at the icon of the app that actually is a phone. Like, what's the icon of the app that lets you call other people? It's a handheld receiver. Which is part of a dial phone, which, honestly, you, there's YouTube videos making fun of teenagers that don't know what that is. Yeah. But that's the icon for a phone, and it will be forever, even though our phones haven't looked like that since, what, 2009? Yeah, I think people just know and accept that. I wonder what it would take to change that. Like, at what point is it just... I mean, there's going to be a point where we don't even call it a phone call. Well, I, I mean, we call our, our devices. They're really what they are. But we, call, we still call these phones. Yeah, my but, phone. But they haven't been phones for years now. It hasn't been my phone for a year. This is just my personal computing device that I carry around with me everywhere. Like, it, the percentage of the time that I use it as a phone pales in comparison to the time that I use it as a web browsing app. Hmm. Yeah, well... Listeners, what are some of the skeuomorphs that you see out there? I'm interested to hear and see. I'll put together an infographic, I'm sure, as I'm editing this and add it to our photo album on the um, Facebook page. But I, thank you, Nicole, for bringing that to our attention. Josh, we're bad at rhetoric today. I want to talk about a term called interrogatio. Interrogatio is Latin. It's um, I'm guessing it's a root for interrogation, which is to ask questions. Yes, there's two possible meanings for it. It's the Latin term for erotima, which means rhetorical question, which is what you think it is. Uh, but in ad herenium, it's it's expressed interestingly as employing a question as a way of confirming or reinforcing the argument one has just made. Wouldn't you say so, Josh? Hmm. I, I, I can't help <laughs> but agree with your last question there, Ben. That's interrogatio. That was pretty short. Um I had a listener suggest an idea for a new segment that I want to add into the podcast. So I'm we're going to call it What I'm Reading Right Now. Oh, and dear. rather than like spend a long time reviewing a book, it's just going to be like 20 seconds on what I'm reading. Uh, you, dang it, Ben. You realize like this segment by itself is going to force me to like open up and expand and actually read stuff now, right? Okay, there's this classic episode of the sitcom uh, Roseanne with Roseanne Barr, uh, where they had been selected as a Nielsen family, which meant that they got a little box that sat on top of their TV and recorded everything they watched, and that they decided that that meant that they needed to watch educational TV all the time <laughs> so that people wouldn't <laughs> think they were dumb hicks instead of just watching the normal trash that they usually watched. And at the end of the episode, they finally gave up and just went back to watching the, the regular stuff that they watched. But for a while there, they were all sitting around watching educational TV programs and annoyed at it. Well, I'm going to get annoyed with this segment because every episode it's going to be you rattling off the three different educational autobiographies that you read. And I'm going to just be like, well, I'm reading through the Wheel of Time still. And again, I'm in book three, one of my favorites. Okay, that's what you're reading right now? No, I'm actually not. 
<laughs> okay, what are you reading right now? Ugh. So, uh, remember I said that I get a backlog. I get the maximum number of Audible credits, and that's when I panic and I go buy a bunch of books, right? Yeah, yeah. So, what happened was I was actually going through – I knew that I had these stacked. I'm like, I've got to find something to read and buy, use all my credits before they expire. And TikTok delivered to me, oh, these are the, the some of the best fantasy novels of the age. And it was like this guy's top ten list. And, and you hadn't read some of them, all I, of them? I, I had read more than half of them. Okay. But uh, two of the trilogies. That, That's legit. That, two of the trilogies that he threw out there were ones that I had never heard of. Um, the first one was the Gentleman Bastards trilogy. Never heard of it. Never heard of it. Um, so here's the thing. The story is like so-so. Like, honestly, the story is like a three. It's mad. It's fine. It'll take up your time. But the author... The way that these people talk in his books is delicious. Like the way that they that mm. they insult each other is just phenomenal. I could listen to them sit in a bar and banter forever. That's the way my wife describes Terry Pratchett, his, okay. the British author, recently died, but same kind of thing. That just his dialogue and exploration of character is interesting enough that she'll read any book he's written. Uh, this was by Scott Lynch. Um, like I said, the story was so-so. The second story was, ugh. The second mm-hmm. book was like a low point. The third one came back. But again, it's just the way that they talk and the word choices they use is phenomenal. I love okay. it. Um, right now I am reading, I just started a new trilogy by Joe Ambercrombie uh, called The Blade Itself. This is the title of the first book. I don't know what the trilogy is called. I'm only like an hour into it. And so far it's, I mean, it's your standard first hour of a fantasy novel. I'm learning proper right. nouns. I'm being introduced <laughs> to characters, that kind of thing. You know, I feel like I have a finite capacity for doing that, and I'm almost reached it, and I'm saving them up now instead of spending them facetiously. <laughs> Your ability to learn proper nouns? Yes. Yeah. Like, like I can not I can only do this maybe a hundred more times in my life, and I don't want to waste it on something carelessly. That's like that Far Side comic where the kids are all in school, and one's got like a tiny little head, and he raises his hands like, Teacher, my brain is full. Can I go home? <laughs> So right now, I uh, just finished a book called A Hobbit, A Wardrobe, and A Great War. How J.R.R. Tolkien, C.S. Lewis, Rediscovered Faith, Friendship, and Heroism in the Cataclysm of 1914 to 1918. You you are a horrible, horrible person. By Joseph Leconte. You seriously read a nonfiction book analyzing why some of the greatest fiction that's ever been written was good and how it related to the real world? Yes, and it was fascinating. So I just why am I friends with you? I don't I don't understand sometimes. <laughs> I loved it. I loved hearing about how both J.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis were officers that fought in the Great War in Europe back in, you know, the early uh, 20th century and that all of the experiences they went through and how that fed into their fantasy writing later in their life. Um, so after that, I started watching um, the the uh, first first book, Lord of the Rings, uh, of J.R.R. Tolkien's three book saga, The Lord of the Rings, and I, I kept seeing the things like, oh yeah, that's because <laughs> you know he had that relationship with that Scottish guy, or oh that's when he was in the hospital uh, after he'd been injured in the battle, like it, it was all right there. How is that more interesting? Like why? What about you is makes like the the. The, the origin of the story more interesting than the story itself. Why do we tell stories? To completely forget about the objectively terrible reality we live in and live some fantasy life for half an hour. I Obviously. So. <laughs> I, I, think, I think that you know, there's a lot of evidence here that J.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis told these stories to 
embrace an ideology that maybe was dying or to try to cope with and understand the things that happened to them. Or you're doing that thing that English teachers did to me my entire academic <laughs> career where, okay. I, I hated it too, Josh. I and now I'm doing it because I like it. I will never forget my senior year of high school when we read Watership Down. Ben, have you ever read Watership Down? No, I'm aware of it. Uh, yes, it's a book about bunnies. And it's a book about, like, there there is a psychic bunny that foretold the doom of his war. And, and then exterminators came and wiped out. Oh, spoilers for the Watership Down, everybody. <laughs> It killed everybody except the handful of dudes that was in his little psychic group. And then they went around looking for other boroughs. And each borough has a different form of government. And that's the whole shtick is that it's looking at through this this weird lens, looking at different organizations of civil government. And I swear to you, my English teacher and I would have knocked down drag outs in the middle of class because he's like, this is an in-depth analysis about different systems that we live under as people in civilization and i'm like it's about talking rabbits that are trying to find a new home and they all suck and like we just couldn't come to terms with like reconciling each other's differences of opinion yeah i i get that josh but like when i hear that that um J.R. tolkien was, was hit by shrapnel from an artillery round and then was rescued by a woman who cared it, who nursed him back to health in a hospital and then when you see frodo who got stabbed by one of the one of the wraiths whatever they're called and was nursed back to health in a hospital by arwen it's hard not to see the parallel there well no the parallel is obvious but here's my problem is is people that analyze it after the fact want to attribute all of this like gravitas to it and yeah. it's i can see J.R.R. token in an interview with somebody's like oh Oh, did your experience like having that kind of trauma and being rescued by a matronly woman and like putting layering all of that meaning onto it did that influence the scene that you had with Frodo and and the elf lady and Gerald Token in his mind going I'm just writing the stuff that I know about because that's what you write about but his mouth going oh absolutely I'm glad that you caught on to that <laughs> Well, it's funny because C.S. Lewis, his first published work was a sci-fi novel that he'd written about humans going and populating another planet. And he had very deliberately made it an allegory for the, the biblical story of the fall of Adam and Eve. And he, once it was released and people started consuming, he was a bit perturbed that in, that people hadn't picked up on the biblical meaning that he tried to embed into it. So that's why it was so <laughs> obvious when he wrote The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. <laughs> if any of our listeners are aspiring writers, not even writers, just artists, guess what? You're going to create art, you're going to release it into the universe, and it's not yours anymore. People can do whatever they want with it, and that's none of your business. Yeah. All right, well then, let's talk about one of my favorite films. Now, Josh, I was delighted to find out that when I asked you to watch <laughs> the 2006 film Stranger Than Fiction, uh, that you had never seen it. So I think all I told you was it's a it's a movie about an accountant. <laughs> so I I was aware of Stranger Than Fiction, and I was aware that this was this was the sum total of my knowledge of that movie was that it's about a guy who figures out that he's a character in a story. And that is, that's it. That's all I knew about it. Okay. That's a good place to start. So obviously, listeners, uh, we're going we're gonna to talk about this in great depth. So spoilers for Stranger Than Fiction. If you haven't seen it, I recommend it. Uh, I don't know that it's really spoilable, but if you want to see it, watch it before you hear us discuss it. It is absolutely spoilable. Okay. I, I, mean, I mean, like, the, yeah, the main shtick is exposed in like the first, what, 10 minutes of the film. But that's not, that's not what you can spoil. Right. All right, so so this is directed by Mark Foster, who also relate who also um, 
directed another film that we've reviewed on the Bad at Magic podcast. Get this, World War Z. Oh, that movie was terrible. I know. <laughs> he also directed Monsters Ball, which Halle Berry won a, um, an Oscar, Best Actress Oscar for. And he also directed Quantum of Solace, one of the uh, James Bond movies mm, with Daniel Craig. One of the but, better so, James Bond movies, yeah. But that's kind of a diverse set of films. This one's more contemplative and quiet, but he had a, a really good cast. So um, the writer. Oh, man. Yeah, I can't. All right. So before you keep going, like the cast kept blowing me away. Like, wait a minute. Like, I kept saying to my wife, because I'm terrible with proper nouns when it comes to actors and actresses, but I'm like, wait, uh-huh. that's a guy. That's a person. That's a person. She's like, yes, these are all people. These are all big-name people <laughs> that are in the background of this movie. Yeah. So Will Ferrell, obviously, in the lead role. And this was interesting because it was a departure from his usual, you know, like, slap-happy, over-the-top, comedic nonsense that he was doing. <sighs> I mean, like, so- old school. <laughs> Okay. Let's go streaking. Uh, all right. There was an era in what was that? The early 2000s where um, there was a string of movies that came out. And for the longest time, I hated Will Ferrell because of these movies. And it was basically Will Ferrell is funny part two or part eight or part 10. Talladega Nights is another one. Elf. Like there were so many movies where people were just capitalizing on, oh, Will Ferrell, he's big right now. Let's put him in a movie and just let him riff on the camera and it'll be it'll be gold. We won't have to pay any writers. And so I, how did you get over that? Because he is pretty talented, and some of his stuff's really good. Well, and and that's that's how I got over it is because he does he is a legitimately good actor. And um, this movie is one of the one of the better examples of he does have more range than he portrays, or that he he has more range than he has monetized. Let's put it that way. Mm, another that's interesting. Another way that I got over it was uh, I don't remember where I saw this, but Tina Fey actually gave a really good interview talking about Will Ferrell, about how he's such a good impressionist, and just a lot of the things that she said about the way that he controls his body and his facial movements. Like there are people that. Uh, like you think about Jim Carrey that go absolutely nuts when they're trying to do an impression and like they're doing a caricature of the person that they're impersonating. But Will Ferrell impersonating anybody that he's ever impersonated on SNL, it's it's very subtle and it's very small changes to him, but he nails it every time. Yeah. So the conceit of Stranger Than Fiction is we meet Will Ferrell as Harold Crick and he's like this anal retentive IRS agent. Well, every okay, day. hang on, hang on. I'm, I'm going to take offense to, to is, your Is that redundant? To say that, like, aren't they all? Oh, you're, you're <laughs> deliberately antagonizing me now. Just because somebody is into numbers and bureaucracy and order does not make them anal retentive. I want that on the record. I stand by what I said. And he gets up every morning and um, exactly the same time every day, counts the number of brush strokes as he brushes his teeth, ties a particular tie knot because that's the most efficient thing to do, and gets out to the bus at exactly the same time to day, of day and takes the bus to his job at the IRS. Okay, Ben, so this movie, yeah, like right off the bat, like broke my brain in several ways. And the first one, do you not count your brush strokes when you're brushing your teeth? Josh, you count your brush strokes? <laughs> Oh no! This is no. I, I absolutely do not. <laughs> okay, well that, that that's all I wanted to ask. Go ahead. <laughs> okay, so Harold Crick goes to work, and we just kind of get introduced to his day. There's this brilliant little scene where they show kind of graphics overlaid on his life that you can't see, but they kind of represent just this very analytical way of thinking. <laughs> I loved it. 
Uh, all right, all right. So I'm going to come clean. No, I don't count my brush strokes when I brush my teeth. But okay. I, I have and will continue to count every step that I go up or down in my entire life. Ah. And so at like, one point when the, when the professor says to Harold, were you counting those stairs? How many were there? And he instantly knew the answer. You do that? Yes. Yes, I, wow. of, cor- of course I do that. And I don't know why, but I do. And so this was like this character, Harold Crick, was hitting like a lot of boxes. Like I'm identifying very strongly with this character and, and seeing all the geometry and the shapes and the numbers and things like I, I, all right. So I don't like I don't see numbers when I'm looking around. But Ben, I, I won't lie. I feel that way sometimes. Yeah. Like just measuring things and distances. Like, yeah, yeah, I, I, I get where he's coming from. So this is filmed on location in Chicago. It introduces to a day in the life of Harold Crick, and he goes to work, and he gets there, and people ask him complex math problems, and he knows the answers off the top of his head. And Seemingly for fun. Yeah, yeah, just just as a curiosity. And he's he seems to enjoy his mundane life as an auditor working for the IRS. The next day, he wakes up, and as he's starting to get ready, he can hear the voice that we, the viewer of the movie, have been hearing all along, which is the voice of... Um, um, the narrator Emma Thompson playing author Karen Eiffel narrating his life which is I, I'm, I really appreciate that they opened with like I did not want the movie to run very long before that happened because that's the interesting part right is him realizing that his life is being narrated and I appreciate the very subtle way that they introduced it because even though I knew the shit going in the way that they like exposed the fact that he's hearing I wrote it down it's like non-diegetic uh uh, words like this happens in film constantly like any movie any tv show that you have ever seen has this uh, i'm i'm gonna have to look it up later but i think there's there's a term for when there is sounds or noise or things that are happening that the characters aren't supposed to hear right and it's clear that he is now hearing that and just like that that breakdown of the meta structure of the storytelling immediately piqued my curiosity oh yeah the the, the so the it's in his bathroom as he's brushing his teeth and you get the you see the look on his face as he realizes he's hearing a woman's voice and he's trying to figure out where it's coming from because she's not only narrating but she's saying what he's thinking yeah and it's apparently accurate yeah and he's like hello <laughs> <laughs> and then he does this thing that is the source of one of my greatest annoyances that they don't fall afoul of and that is when something fantastic happens to a character in a movie there's a finite period of time where they are in disbelief Either denial or or they just like I'm not crazy, you're crazy, or what yes. is happening? Yeah, that kind right. of thing. And sometimes I just get really annoyed because I don't feel like th- the people that wrote the character actually sat down and tried to determine what a realistic amount of time for the character to do that would be. At what point do you just accept your new reality? Well, and and he tried to live his normal life for what all of a day or two before he started seeking actual help for it. Yes, well, there was a trigger. And that's that's the important. It's a very important yes, point. Yes, the there was a trigger. You're absolutely. There was correct. a trigger. He was his, just trying to live his life with this person narrating his thoughts. Like all right, once I he guess realized is, no one else could hear it, he was just going to carry on as before. Well, and that's just the such a great IRS agent thing to do. It's like, well, somebody narrates my life. I guess this is just like my existence <laughs> now, and just press on with your day. Kinda. He did all the due process things. He went to the IRS counselor that probably works in the HR department. He's like, hey, I'm hearing a voice. And the guy does what's, what he's capable of and what's in his sphere of control. He's like, well, I see here you haven't taken a vacation in two years. Why don't you take some time off? <laughs> if you're going to go crazy, please don't do it on company property. That's a liability for us. So he refers him to a psychiatrist. 
And so he goes to a psychiatrist who looks like Edna Maud. And she's like, <laughs> that's exactly who I thought of, who is also a famous actress, by the way. Just, yeah. just throwing A-listers onto this movie for yeah, no yeah. reason. So he's talking to her and he's, and he explains it to her. And she's like, I think you're schizophrenic. He's like, yeah, but it's not schizophrenia. And she's like, well, it sounds like you are. He's like, well, if it wasn't, what would it? What would you tell me to do? She's like, I would tell you to take prescribed medication. And he's like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she was one hundred percent convinced that that guy was a psycho. Yeah, he's like, well, if you didn't do that, what would you do? And she's like, well, I think you should speak to an expert on literature. Uh, assume that the narrator is real, and what I'm experiencing is a real phenomenon. Then what should I do? <laughs> oh well, obviously you should go see Dustin Hoffman. So then he goes to see Professor Jules Hilbert, literature uh, professor at the University of Illinois, Chicago. What an awesome character. Okay, so this is where the film really took off for me. Honestly, he's meeting Dustin Hoffman's character. Uh And I don't know whose decision this was, but my wife pointed out, like I was subtly aware of it in my subconscious, but she pointed it out. In the one scene that we're introduced to him is our, our main character, Will Ferrell, uh-huh. walks up to him and they're talking in a hallway as they're walking. Uh-huh. And he has to have a conversation where Will Ferrell's trying to convince him this thing is happening, blah, blah, blah. And in this like two or three minute scene, Dustin Hoffman has three completely separate cups of coffee. Yeah. Like yeah, yeah. he the He's, scene opens, he drinks so much coffee in he, <laughs> he is he opens the scene drinking a cup of coffee. They go into the bathroom where he is peeing and he, he waves doesn't Will break F- the conversation while he's standing at the urinal peeing. Yes, and he has Will Ferrell slide the coffee over so he could drink it while he is peeing, and then he throws that away. He goes into the hallway to the coffee machine that is across from the bathroom and gets a cup of coffee, drinks that, gets to his 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 office, throws that cup away, and brews another cup of coffee on his <laughs> coffee maker. And he is either drinking coffee or eating in every single scene he's in in that movie. It, it, it's fantastic. That's yeah. It, those are the kinds of details that make people feel real. Yeah, and he, and he asks him all those questions like, "How many stairs were there, Harold? I noticed you counting the stairs. I didn't count the stairs." And Dustin Hoffman just looks like, "Oh, okay." And then they move on to the conversation, knowing that they're that he's lying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so. So, so Harold Crick has a narrator on his life. He's trying to figure out what's going on, and he ends up with this professor, and he's about to have the same interaction with the professor that he had with the counselor and the psychiatrist, and he's walking out of the office, and he says, all I remember is that she said, little did he know that Harold Crick had just initiated a sequence of events that would eventually lead to his untimely demise. Yeah, and then that just halts Dustin Hoffman in his tracks. Up until this point, Dustin Hoffman is completely blowing off Harold Crick and like, this guy's just some crazy weirdo and I don't have time to entertain anything that he's doing. And he just complete 180. Yeah, little did he know. Little did he know, Harold. I have written papers on little did he know. I have given workshops on little did he know. (laughs) Holy crap, Harold. Let's talk. He drops everything. Like, (laughs) he like goes to his calendar is like, uh, can you meet me on Friday? No, you said imminent. You could be dead on Friday. How about tomorrow morning at 9.30 a.m.? And Harold comes in at 9.30 a.m. the next day, and Dustin Hoffman has what looks like a list a, of 23 questions. Yeah, but that, that he opened to the middle of a of a new notebook and started reading those questions. So he has <laughs> clearly been like theorizing and strategizing all night to try to determine exactly what is going on. I found out a fascinating fact about this. They named him Professor um, Hilbert, and there's actually a real-life Professor Hilbert that lived about the same time who was famous for writing something called the 23 Questions. Oh, God. That's how many questions were in the interview that Professor Hilbert gave to Harold. Okay, all right. 
the fact I, I'm a huge fan of, of breaking the fourth wall and getting super meta. Okay. And this movie almost broke me on that a couple of times, but there cannot be a third level of meta awareness that this movie has. Okay. Well, they didn't bring it out in the movie. Anyway, he asked him 23 questions, which is an example of, have you ever played the game or gone to the website Akinator? Mm -mm. Okay. It's this website that purports to read your mind. All it says is you have to think of a fictional character and then it will ask you yes or no questions and then figure out who it is you're thinking about. And presumably they're just very well-designed questions and a very well-designed tree to filter you down into the most common characters. Yes, exactly. Um, you can play this game with your um, Amazon Echo device. I assume Google has a version as well. But if you just ask your Echo, you didn't know this, you say, Alexa, let's play Akinator, and she'll start it up and play this game with you. I, I this, this interaction was also very cool because he started with the most ridiculous questions. Like, you, uh -huh. like totally, 100%. Are you, are you the king of anything? Again, this, is, this guy came to Dustin Hoffman, and Dustin Hoffman blew him off thinking that he was a complete crazy person. Uh -huh. And then the next day, Dustin Hoffman is asking him these questions point blank, completely seriously. Are, do you have any supernatural powers? Are you the king of anything? And, and he's like, like, what? King of anything? No. What are you talking about? Yeah, and then he asked him, like, the guy's like, what, what does this have to do with anything? And he's like, well, I'm trying to figure out what story that you're in by eliminating the stories that you're not in. And based on the responses so far, I can eliminate. And he started rattling off this list of classic literature. Yep, yep. Uh, it was great. Okay, so now we've, we're kind of zeroing in on that Harold has a narrator because he's in a story. And we're trying to find out what story is. Because if we find out what story it is, then we can find out who's writing it and figure out if he can prevent his untimely death that was foreshadowed earlier on or if nothing else just get some kind of insight into the kind of like life that he's going to be living or what he can expect from this imminent death so meanwhile the filmmakers have already introduced this to this author a really interesting character played by a famous actress um emma thompson who's playing karen eiffel who's this writer who's notorious for releasing these well-known and well-received books but it's also a bit of a recluse and in them, all of her characters die in the end. So creativity, like this is, I think this is documented somewhere. Creativity borders very, very closely to instability as a mental framework. And so it's it's documented that some of the most creative people in the world are also some of the most unhinged. Yeah. And so they kind of portray her like this. Like she has lots of weird, quirky habits. She lives in this sparse, lonely-looking apartment. She's always barefoot. She stands out in the rain for no reason. She smokes cigarettes and puts them out by spitting into a napkin. It's really kind of gross. Now, let's be clear. She was out in the rain for a reason. She was researching how to kill Harold Crick. <laughs> I like that she pointed that out because then they introduce Queen Latifah. Okay, Josh, this idea <laughs> fascinates me. Queen Latifah plays what's like a fixer in a mob but she's there on behalf of the production company. That is the perfect way to describe her. It's like she came in and is like, oh, I'm your new personal assistant that the publication company has come. Like, you're the spy from the publication company. She goes, yes, yes, I am. The publication <laughs> company sent me because I have never busted a deadline and I have helped. Like, And she started rallying off her, her accolades. Like, yeah, yeah I've wrote my... it down. Here we go. I've been an author's assistant for 11 years. I've helped 20 authors finish more than 35 books, and I've never missed a deadline. And I've never gone back to the publisher to ask for more time. I do not like, I do not like loud music. I do not abide narcotics. And I will gladly and quietly help you kill Harold Crick. I was waiting for the scene where uh, Queen Latifah had Emma Thompson like strapped to a chair and was like putting cigarettes <laughs> out on her arm. Be like, write the book! Write the book! <laughs> 
<laughs> so she's there just kind of quietly prodding Karen Eiffel to finish writing the story, completely oblivious to the fact that Harold can now hear her voice as she's typing at her typewriter Harold's story. Okay, hang on. You're glossing over a part of this. And the part of this that we don't know yet is that whenever they show either of these two characters, they're completely disjoint. Like there is no overlap between the two. And so as a new viewer of the movie, I completely 100% believed that Harold Crick was a fictional character in existence off on his own separate storyline and that we were getting flashes of the separate story of the author writing this novel that is the story of Harold's life. So at what point did that change for you? When the scene where uh, Harold is in with uh, Dustin Hoffman in his office and on the TV is the interview with Emma Thompson. Like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, I was freaking out. Like, these two exist in the same universe? What? That, that's, that's the part where my brain started okay. melting down. It, Harold said it earlier and you might have missed it. But he said that he thinks she lives in the same area as him because she was familiar with the geography. Well, like, I, I, she I, was saying like street names and stuff like that, or the name of the bus, the Kroninger bus, or something like that. I immediately blew that off as well. Of course, she's writing the story in the city that she lives because that's the city that she knows. Okay, all right, I get that. Every morning when Harold gets up, uh, it, the, when they first showed him and introduced his personality, they announced some of the numbers and stuff, and I want to run these by you. Uh, it said he tied a single Windsor knot because it was more efficient. Josh, what knot do you tie when you tie a tie? So, Ben, I'm not a slob. I, of course, tie a double Windsor every yeah, time me too. I wear a tie. Like, a, a single Windsor looks trashy. Whatever, Harold, <laughs> you can have it. Maybe if you're tall, you need the, the extra fabric. Uh, I am tall, and you don't need the extra fabric. It, it was a time-saving device. Is because he stayed up until eleven thirteen every night and woke up at six the next morning. Like you're clearly not getting enough sleep. You need to go to bed at ten like a normal person. Wake up a half an hour <laughs> earlier and be on time to everything. And it said that he had a forty-five point seven minute lunch break. And I thought it was interesting that he measured minutes and decimals because that's hard to do. But um, I measure it, minutes and decimals constantly because that's how what? we bill our clients. Oh my gosh. <laughs> That's why. That's got to be why she was measuring minutes and decimals. Oh, well, that how? What, that's all right, so. Time is annoying because it doesn't break down into a base ten system, and so breaking hours and then minutes into decimals makes more sense if you're trying to assign a monetary value to it. Okay. All right. Um, she said that he audited seven point one three four tax files every day. Is that good? Yeah, that's insanely good. Like that's okay. Like he has to be doing them by mail. Yeah. Well, okay, there were some really stark visuals there, like all the, the miles of cubicles in his work. And then they went down into the basement where there was all these IRS file boxes. <laughs> and it was it was stunning almost to think that somewhere in some basement somewhere, all these boxes full of people's 1040s and manila folders filed so meticulously that they could go and find yours. Okay, so two things. One, you would like to think that those are all digital records. They're not. The IRS is so far behind. Like, if, think of any government institution. Ben, you work for one. Yeah. Are all of your documents digital? Uh, <laughs> uh, I try. No, no. <laughs> no, they're not. Exactly. Like, you try, but they're not. And so you're always going to have paper copies of something floating around somewhere. And then two, I can guarantee you there is no way the filing system is anywhere near that good because in in just the handful of years that I've been an accountant, I've had the IRS lose so much crap that I've sent them. Yeah, that's unfortunate. 
So Harold finally is at an impasse with his narrator because he doesn't want to go on to die. So he's sitting there in the basement holding a bunch of files, not moving. And his friend Dave comes looking for him. I love his friend Dave. <laughs> Dave felt like a real person, too. He had hopes and dreams, and he was so much more than just a side character. Yeah. So Dave comes down. He's like, Harold, are you OK? What are you doing down here? And he's like, can you hear the voice? He's like, no, I can't hear the voice, man. What are you talking about? He's like. And then he starts moving the files, and you can hear Emma Thompson's beautiful voice narrating so wonderfully about how the files sound like waves hitting the the sand on the shore. And he even said, like, the crazy thing is sometimes I do think about a deep blue ocean with the waves <laughs> that the files are making. And he's like, what are you talking about? So then Dave's sitting there looking at Harold thinking, man, you're absolutely losing your freaking mind. And then a, and a lady who's obviously their supervisor comes down and says, hey, I got two audits you guys need to do. One of them's really thick. And one of them was really thin. The thin one, he said, was a bakery. And the thick one, he said, was like a, a, a securities trader. A securities broker, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so Dave <laughs> kind of looks at the two files. And I think he makes an assessment like, Harold, maybe you, maybe I should take the hard one and you get the easy one. Why don't you go ahead and take this bakery? <laughs> <laughs> Is that accurate? Is it like that? Uh, I mean, I, I personally, I haven't dealt with a whole ton of audits. But no, like the vast majority of the audits the IRS does right now are what's called by mail audits. It's where the IRS will send you a notice and say, hey, we think this happened. If you agree, pay the difference. If you don't agree, here's how you can respond. Provide documentation. Yeah, only like an IRS – like that's the thing. There's That's a whole – the next level is when a revenue agent actually gets involved and like shows up at your door and like, all right, show me your files. That's that's a whole other level of you're screwed. Yeah. So here's where the plot thickens, and I really enjoyed this part. So he goes to the bakery to audit a new character, Maggie Gyllenhaal, playing Aunt Anna – Pascal. Uh, Pascal. He calls her Miss Pascal for most of the movie. Um, and he shows up at the bakery, and she immediately is extremely hostile to the fact that an IRS agent has come to audit her. But she should have expected it because she deliberately refused to pay her whole tax bill the previous year. So there's a lot of problems I have with the scene where she's talking about that. It's like, I paid exactly 78% of my tax because I disagree with Congress's apportionment of 22% of my tax. My wife had to shush me from going on <laughs> a rant about like, you don't get to decide what discretionary funding and where it goes. Like, this isn't your right. Like, you get to do that when you vote for your representatives. You don't get to pick what you do and do not pay for it. That is against the law. Yes, you are breaking the law. Yes, You're not going to yeah. go to jail for it. They're just going to collect your tax. And then my wife's like, shut up. We're watching a movie. <laughs> yes. And, and that, but see, Harold was trying to explain, she was going on the rant and Harold was trying to explain the same thing to her. Like, you don't get to decide that. You just go to jail because you didn't obey the law. I, all right. So Ben, I'm not, I'm not gonna lie to you. I want to be an IRS auditor because that sounds like the perfect job for me <laughs> because I get to be an emotionless robot. I've already got my speech. I've got my whole spiel laid out the first well, time I walked into somebody's office. back in 2006, office. now you just get to send someone to notice that they're being audited by mail. Well, I, so if I was an IRS auditor, I walked into somebody's office. The first thing I would say is I, my name is this. I work for the IRS. I am not audited. Uh, you're being audited. I will do my best to be friendly, but I'm not your friend. I am here representing the U.S. government. I don't care what you have or have not done. I'm here to find the objective truth and whether or not you have applied the rules correctly. Okay, good. So he goes to Anna's bakery and he introduces himself and she immediately creates a, an uproar in the bakery amongst the customers and they all yell at him and boo at him. Can you relate to this being booed as a tax collector? As the tax guy? It's like, yeah. Tax no, man. Tax man. Boo. boo, tax man. Like, I, yeah, Harold just stood there and kind of took it. I had to turn around and be like, yeah, I don't care. Like, this is what I do. Okay, well. But she's a bit of a manic pixie dream girl. I don't know if she's actually an MPDG here, but but she is. <laughs> she's she's cute and flirty, and and well, so and while is, 
the the juxtaposition of her character drove me nuts because she would go from like I hate you and everything you represent to oh you're kind of cute why don't you hang out with me after hours and she would flip that switch on a dime with no warning yeah so she's she's kind of doing that you can hear the narrator you can hear Karen Eiffel narrating over the top that Harold's checking her out <laughs> that was really funny she's going on this rant about how much she hates his guts and <laughs> Emma Thompson will not shut up about how. How <laughs> Will Ferrell just wants to see her naked. <laughs> so finally, Anna turns to him and she goes, "Mr. Crick, you're staring at my tits." And he goes, "I I don't think I was. I, I I don't think I would do that. I can assure you that if I was, it was only as a representative of the United States government." <laughs> <laughs> so this is another thing that happens. This almost feels like a movie trope where he is a so a pseudo normal person in every other interaction with any other human being, uh-huh. but he shows up in front of a woman he finds attractive and, and just cannot put two words together to save his life. The only other backstory they gave him of potentially having some other kind of love life was a throwaway line earlier where someone asked him, whatever happened to so-and-so and he, uh, or did you ever, have you ever been married? And he says, I was engaged to an auditor. She left me for an actuary, <laughs> <laughs> which is really funny. He says, at the IRS, we're given rigorous aptitude tests before we can work. Is that true? Yeah, absolutely true. Huh. Okay, so then he, he he's kind of flustered by the whole interaction, getting yelled at and stuff. He's like, tell you what, I'll give you some time to get ready. I'll come back tomorrow or next week and we'll start the audit. So he comes back the next week and she's ready for him, quote unquote, ready for him. She sends him upstairs and gives him a big box full of receipts. <laughs> and she's which like, she's deliberately mixed up <laughs> i don't know if that's true or not because he, she gives him this box of what looks like trash and he says and she he goes what is this he goes these are my receipts and he goes these are your receipts like this is a mess and she goes i'm usually very fastidious but i made this just for you so i can't tell if she is just a terrible person that throws all this stuff in a box because frankly ben that's what i tell my clients to do like oh i should file everything right I'm like no throw it in a box if the irs wants it they can come get it like, that's what I tell clients hmm. for record-keeping purposes. And okay. Well, I think for the point of the movie, it, they wanted us to think that she deliberately mixed it up a little bit. Uh, that's what she said. I don't know if that's true or not. All right. All right. So he's there. He works all day trying to work through it. And every time he tries to interact with her, she's snippy and mean about it. And finally, she gets to the end of the day. And I think she's just realized that he doesn't deserve – he really is just a guy trying to do his job and that she should just be nicer to him. So she bakes him some cookies and brings it to him. I want you to talk about the cookie incident. Ah, the cookie incident. So she bakes some cookies. And she's a baker in a bakery. So it's not outside of the normal possibility that she's making cookies like after hours or whatever, right? right? And they have this conversation about cookies. Like, oh, you looks like you had a terrible day. Why don't you have a cookie? And he's like, oh, I don't like cookies. And they had that conversation about, I only ever had store-bought cookies. And she's like, sit down. I'm a professional baker. Have my professionally baked cookies. And he eats one, and it's clear that it's delicious, and he loves it. And then she brings over, like, a whole plate. And then he eats a couple more. And they have this friendly interaction. And she's like, here, let me box some of these up. You can take them home. And this is when he's like, no, I can't take those. And she's like, no, seriously. Like, And he goes, I can't accept these cookies because – like they you, constitute a gift. They constitute a gift, and you can't give me gifts. That's an unprofessional relationship between auditor and audit E. And he goes, I'm happy to pay for them, though. And then she gets super mad at him, and honestly, yeah. I, I think unjustifiably. Like, she just mm. tried to do something nice for him, and the way that she took it was that he was kind of spitting in, in, her, in, in, her, in her face. So we talked about this a, a while back on the podcast. We talked about, like, what if you had a really <laughs> delicious Thanksgiving dinner, and then you said to your mother-in-law, okay, how much do I owe you? You know, like she was 
in that interaction to her, he was trying to monetize something that, that to her wasn't monetary. But this right there, that that interaction explains why they live in two different worlds, right? Is because he lives in this rigid, structured universe that has rules and things that he can and can't do, and he abides by them. He's he's just the lawful neutral, just doing his thing. And meanwhile, she's the chaotic good. Right. She doesn't care about the rules. She sees like Great I just classification, wanted, no arguments whatsoever. I just wanted to do something nice for you. Like, screw the rules. And he's like, you can't screw the rules. They're the rules. And really, that's the interaction that they're having. Yeah. Except later on, he changes alignment. Well, he changes alignment because he finds out that he's going to die. Well, it's not that he finds out. It's that he starts putting more stock into the fact that he's going to die when he goes back to the – he keeps going back to Dustin Hoffman, our professor character. And Dustin Hoffman goes, all right, we have to figure out if you're driving the plot or if the plot is driving you. He goes, what does that mean? (laughs) Like, all right, so is the story revolving around you or is the story happening to you? He's like, how do I figure that out? Go home tonight and then – don't do anything tomorrow. Don't go to work. Don't answer the phone. Don't answer your door. Sit on your couch and do nothing. And that is exactly what he did. I love it. They showed, like, he had it on the Nature Channel, and the show just kept getting worse and worse and worse. And he was kept so looking dumb. at the remote, yeah. co- remote control like he wanted to change the channel, but he knew he couldn't do anything. But that, like, he reached for it, and he realized that might constitute doing something. And then his phone rang, and he wanted to answer it. He goes, that might constitute doing something. I have to go to the bathroom. And it showed, like, his numbers popped up and, like, all of his little attributes. Like, it's clear he had to go to the bathroom. And then but he just getting peed in a bottle. And leaving the room <laughs> might constitute doing something. So he peed in the bottle where he was sitting. And... It was it was delicious irony that he is sitting doing literally nothing, and then all of a sudden a giant industrial uh, uh, claw breaks through his wall, eats his TV, and starts tearing apart his his house. <laughs> so he stands up and goes out and looks at the construction work. He's like, "What are you doing?" And they're like, "We're destroying this building." Like, this what is are you- uh, 482 you, West yeah, Street, right? Yeah, what are you doing? You're not supposed to be in there. I'm like, I live here. And he's like, is that a TV? Yes, that's my TV. You're tearing down my apartment. Yeah. So so Harold goes back to uh, right, Professor hey, Hilbert. Hey, take a time out for a second. How sued is that? Like, everybody on that <laughs> construction crew is fired. That business is now over. Like, I cannot imagine the amount of litigation that is on its way. For destroying way. a populated building? Can you imagine? Like, yeah, the, wow. the, the public safety outrage? Like, are you – there is absolutely no way on this like planet Like, you can go Earth, inside and check to yes, see if there was anyone in there? Exactly. You cannot take a tractor to a building like, I'm pretty sure this is the right one, and then just start destroying it. That is yeah. not how this works. But that wasn't what they're focused on. This was just an answer to the question is, Harold, can you stop this by not doing anything? And the answer, of course, was no, you no. cannot. So he goes you, back to you are not driving Hilbert. the story. The story is driving you. And, Her- and Professor Hilbert says, having your apartment eating by a wrecking ball, Harold, you don't control your fate. <laughs> he goes, I mean, yeah, he said something that was so great because it's like, that's like having the call of, of fate. That's one thing. <laughs> having like a tractor break down the wall of your living room. That's something else entirely. Yeah. <laughs> so um, Professor Hilbert then is like, well, you just need to figure out whether it's a, um, a, a comedy or a tragedy that you're in. Oh, I wish they had played this up more than they did because it was only like one scene where we cared about whether it was a comedy or a tragedy. And this is Harold. But yeah, uh, Harold goes back to the bakery to keep auditing. What's her face? Miss Pascal, Anna Anna Pascal. Uh 
and he has this little notebook, and he's got comedy on one page and tragedy on the other. And he's and just he's, making tally marks. And he's making tally marks to try to figure out if he's in a comedy or a tragedy. And, like, everything that he does and the response that he gets from her, it, it like, allows him to put a mark on one side or the other. And by the end of the day, we see it's, like, three or four for comedy and the entire page full for tragedy. Yeah, and, and, and she's like, Harold, what are you doing in that book? He's like, got oh, nothing. <laughs> and at the end of the day, it was funny because, like, I, I think that was the cookie day. And after the cookie interaction, he realized that he had messed up with her and he tried to make it right, but she wasn't having it. And he, he pulled out his little book and he looked at it and he goes, I know this is not going to make any sense to you, but I think it's a tragedy. And then he put his book away and he walked out into the rain. Yeah, it was beautiful. So he runs into her on the bus the next day, and it says, Harold decided, the, the narrator goes, Harold decided to make small talk. And he's like, you have very nice teeth. And she goes, very small talk. <laughs> <laughs> well, and this is good. This was a cute little interaction they had where Harold actually wasn't tripping over himself. And he had a yeah. couple of witty lines that he said. And it went really well. There's two things I want to say about this. One, it was delicious that the narrator said, Harold started thinking about the function of what a what a jerk he can make of himself as a function of time and realized that his chances increased the longer he stayed and decided to get off the bus. And then he did. He got off the bus. <laughs> 27 makes, blocks too early. Tw- yeah, after he got off the bus, like, tw- he realized he had to walk like, another 27 blocks. Uh, oh, wait, no, come back. delicious. Uh, I'm only going to make it worse. I better get out now while the getting's good. But that's perfect because that's absolutely true. Like, if things yeah. are going well, you want to end it right there on a high point. Always leave them wanting more. That's, that's, that's actually perfect. The second thing I want... I, this is the one time in the film that I want to address the cinematography. Okay. Because they made a deliberate choice where Harold – it was a it was one of those multi-buses where it was like two buses with like the accordion thing in the middle. So yeah, it's almost like yeah. a trailer. And he's sitting on a seat that's like in the accordion but attached to the front part of the bus. Uh-huh. And she's sitting on the front seat of the back half of the bus. And that bus turned left so many times I'm convinced it was going in a circle. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it was, <laughs> but but think about it. That's think funny about that, that you scene. noticed what direction it was turning. <laughs> I just noticed the bus was doing the accordion thing, but I wasn't thinking about what that meant about where it was going. Well, that that's the thing. Like this, it was a deliberate choice by the director, or the cinematographer, or somebody that these two were on two separate parts of the bus that were moving almost separately. Like they were in sync, and she was kind of following him, but they were never moving in the same kind of way. And it was just this this interesting little little point that they decided to make. And yeah, the bus turning impossibly left like eight times in a row in the course of 90 seconds. But I, I don't know. I just thought that was kind of cool. Well, well, since we're talking about the cinematography, there was something I noticed. And that is whenever we transition from Harold's story, and I think this might have contributed why you thought it was actually maybe a, still a fictional world. Uh, and Karen... Karen um, Eiffel's world is it was usually very jarring. She was usually imagining someone committing suicide. She was imagining a car going off a bridge, someone jumping off. She was in the hospital looking at people who were gunshot wound victims. I mean, it it was very different. And there was never um, establishing shots. We we were in the city of Chicago, but they never showed us like, here's the Chicago skyline so you know where you are. Well, all right. So obviously we're panning back for a second. This is a fun time to do it. There are parts of this movie, like the entire movie felt very approachable. It felt like a lighthearted comedy about an interesting concept with these characters and the story that they were that they were telling. But at the same time, there was a point in the movie I looked at my wife and I said, I bet this movie won a ton of awards because it just kind of has that look and feel of like there is some, I don't know, this feels like the most approachable artsy movie that I've ever seen, if that makes sense. Yeah, except I don't think it did win very many awards. I think it got a, a I think it got nominated for a Golden Globe. 
Uh, really? But, yeah, that's about oh. it. And it was 73% on Rotten Tomatoes. Well, it, there's just parts of it where it felt like they were really trying to make a statement. Like, you know, you go see a Marvel movie. It's not about the cinematography. It's not about it, – it's about the, the, the spectacle. It's about telling this story. This movie, there was portions of it where, yeah, they were telling the story and they were telling it well. But you can tell that the people telling the story really tried to, to impart some weight and some gravity on specific things. I mean, right from the title. The title was derived from an 18th century poem by Lord Byron. Of course it was. Tis strange but true, for truth is always strange, stranger than fiction. <laughs> so, but that's what I mean. You like while you're watching this movie, and like it was again, I liked it, and it was a good movie. But I kind of felt this, like almost at a, a barely perceptible level. Like a couple of times, it would crest over my my threshold for under for seeing it. Like it felt like they were really trying to imbue some weight into it. Yes, yeah, there was a few vocabulary words I think were just deliberately long. <laughs> Those kinds of things. R- Roger Ebert, um, uh, the the late Roger Ebert, said, a famous film critic, such an uncommonly intelligent film does not often get made, which requires us to enter the lives of these specific, quiet, sweet, worthy people. Aww. And I really I enjoyed that little uh, take on it. So right about the halfway mark of the movie, right about the 50% mark, Harold has his turnaround. Yes, well, and it's when Dustin Hoffman... Where he changes alignment. Well, it's when Dustin Hoffman tells him... Like, there's nothing you can do. You're not yeah. driving this story. We've established it's a tragedy. Buddy, you're going to die. And, like, there's nothing we can do to stop it. So you need to go live your best life. And then he made what I think was a euphemism for getting with Miss Pascal, talking about pancakes. I'm not sure. But <laughs> I, that's how I took it. Like, buddy, go eat pancakes. <laughs> you can eat pancakes the rest of your life. He's like, I'm going to die. And you're talking about pancakes? He's like, well, I mean, to be fair... It's all about the quality of the pancakes. And he did it in such a way as like, oh, he's not talking about pancakes. Uh, you picked up on that. I did not. And I've watched that movie like 20 times. <laughs> okay. So at that point, he has to move in with his friend Dave, uh, who introduces him to Sleep Pod 2. <laughs> now, all right, so this is – all right. I like movies that respect their their viewers enough that they don't have to spell out or, or shove it in your face that this yes. guy is a space guy. He turned on a light switch in his apartment, and it uh-huh. made the Star Trek communicator noise that it makes when you tap yes. the little badge. But they and, didn't be, beat you over the head with it. Exactly. They didn't, like, there wasn't a, a ton of, like, uh, Star Trek decor. And, yeah, he called it Sleep Pod 2 or whatever. Like, it's clear this guy is a sci-fi fanatic, and they and they didn't shove it down my throat, and I, I appreciate that. Yeah. And then he goes to the guitar store. Ah, the guitar store. So this is, I think, symbolic. I don't know if like a midlife crisis or something like that, but it's you can tell it was some dream that Harold had always had that he decided, you know, if I was going to live my best life, I need to learn how to play the guitar. Well, he said that to uh, to Dustin Hoffman earlier. It's like, do you have any? Do you aspire to anything? And like the only thing he said was like, I want my life to be more musical. It's like what like West Side Story. He's like, no, I just want to play the guitar. And like finally, he decided to make the time in his life to go do the thing that he wanted to do. And this was. This was kind of the turning point like you're talking about is like Harold like took a hard look at his existence as a person. And like I've been doing all of these things that I am supposed to do or that that I'm required to do to fight entropy and sustain my livelihood. But he hasn't gone on leave in three years. <laughs> but, but I'm probably going to die. What are the things that I actually want to do? And I, I, I do love that it's not outrageous. It wasn't something crazy. Like he didn't yeah. want to go climb Mount Everest. He just wanted to do something like simple and attainable, but was clearly way outside of his normal lanes 
of of existence and he wanted to go get a guitar and he wanted to learn how to play it yeah so he went and found a guitar and and the, there's this beautiful scene with emma thompson you know um karen eiffel narrating over the top of his evaluation of these guitars and he's just letting it happen like if he can still hear her he's just soaking it up You're like nope not that one not that one not that one that's the one that guitar <laughs> says i rock and it was, and it was just in the back. It wasn't out front. It wasn't flashy. It had some miles on it. Like it, it, it fit. It fit really well. Yeah. So he got the guitar and learned how to play it. And there was a little montage scene of him, you know, getting a new lease on life, getting up in the morning, not counting his brush strokes anymore, stop wearing a tie, wear a cardigan. So his his character changed alignments and changed opinions. And then we get to the real crux of it, and that is he shows up at Anna uh, Pascal's house holding flowers. Okay. So. Uh, I, I I thought that was delicious. Like he was, <laughs> he was laying in his bed, and he's like, and like Emma Thompson said, his wristwatch wasn't going to let him ignore this opportunity anymore. And the wristwatch lit up, and it was lighting up Anna Pascal's name on a file that was on his nightstand. Yeah, which again is good cinematography. And then he shows up at the bakery as it's closing, and he's holding this tray of little bags, and with the perfectly straight face goes, "I brought you flowers," and. I, I about died, Ben. I thought that was... <laughs> it's a great pun. One of the... Like, well, not only that, but think about it for a second. One, that's very witty to, uh-huh. to give a baker flowers. And two, that took some preparation. Where, right. did, where did he go to get 12 like assorted flowers? Yeah, 12 yeah. assorted bags of flour. And just for a joke, like that's commitment, man. And I I, I loved it. That's that's fantastic. Yep. And then and then they gave him kind of this awkward dialogue. She's like, what are you doing here? He's like, um, on no uncertain terms, I, I want you. <laughs> oh yeah and that's the thing like the, the last interaction he had with her was halfway decent on the bus and now we go back over to stumbling over my own feet because i don't know how to interact with another human being again uh that felt um, like the way that he switched between a functioning human to i can't string two words together and the way that anna pascal switches from i hate you to you're kind of cute those two things were the only parts of the movie that i didn't like ah it worked for me I, th- I don't think anyone that can be witty sometimes is always witty. Ben, I am always witty. I promise you that. <laughs> so it works. He- he's obviously won her over. She invites him in, and she has a guitar sitting on the couch. So Stop. she makes him dinner. Stop everything right there. Uh-huh. Okay. So, Ben, this is the part of the movie where I almost had a complete mental breakdown. And Why? <laughs> okay. So he, he, there's a guitar sitting on her couch, and he sits down and he goes, oh, nice guitar. And she goes, yeah, a customer traded that for some uh, of my muffins. Do I have to claim no, no. that? She said they, they gave me the guitar in exchange for a wedding cake. That's right, in exchange for a wedding cake. Do I have to claim that on my taxes in this funny, in this funny voice? Ben, time stopped for me, okay? <laughs> the world okay. stopped Josh, spinning. tell us the accounting implications <laughs> of receiving a guitar in exchange for a wedding cake. The world stopped spinning for a second, and my brain went to, like, 98% utilization. And not only that, but, like, have you ever had multiple threads in your brain running at the same time, and you have a debate with yourself in your mind? Have you ever done that? No, explain it. Okay, so I- I've said this before, and I'm going to sound crazy, but... The way I feel like my brain works is it's the crew of the Starship Enterprise, okay? There's somebody that's the executive in charge, but there's other people in that room that have opinions, okay? (laughs) The science officer is doing some research. So, like, she said that, and I go, well, yeah, of course. According to U.S. Code Title 26, Section 61, the definition of gross income includes compensation for services, income from businesses, and gains derived from dealings and property. (laughs) This is clearly covered by that. Like, and technically... 
the fact that he gave you a guitar in exchange for wedding cake should have been reported on 1099B, which is a form for proceeds of broker and barter exchange transactions. Now, I guess, depending if she wants to get really crazy with it, she could try to qualify this as a 1031 light kind exchange. But that's a complete stretch. And not only is that a stretch, that's going to be completely dependent on how she does her inventory scheme. And then if even if it qualifies a 1031, this is totally going to screw up her cost of goods sold recognition because that, again, dependent on her inventory scheme. And so here's the thing. My brain is screaming. All the different parts of my brain are screaming at each other. There's one like, oh, well, she should have filed a 1099B. And the other guy's like, well, it could have been a 1031. And then somebody else in the back like, well, if it's a 1031, that's going to screw up her cost of goods sold. And like everybody on the bridge of my brain is all screaming at each other at the same time trying to justify what she just said and how it's wrong. Wow. And it took like the executive, like I had to alt F4 everything in my brain, Ben. I'm not even joking. Like I... <laughs> I almost had a complete mental breakdown because there were so many CPU cycles being used to analyze what she just said and try to make it reality that I that had. That was just a throwaway line. I know it was a throwaway line, but this is the crap that I deal with every day. <laughs> and like I, I missed, I, I legitimately missed a full two minutes of the movie during that scene because like my eyes just glazed over and I was completely bent on processing what she had just said. All right. Well, I'll tell you what happened because he picked up the guitar and played the only song that he knows and then got laid. And it reinforced one of the things, that, one of the <laughs> false things I've always thought about knowing how to play the guitar. <laughs> so, all right. That's when my brain kicked back in is when I started paying attention to the movie again, he was playing the guitar and she was sitting next to him. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I'm glad we got to the bottom of that. So, yes, you do. If someone gives you a guitar in exchange for wedding cake, you do need to report it on your taxes. Thank you, Josh. Not only your taxes, there's other forms that you might need to fill out depending on the exchange. <laughs> like, there's a lot that happens has to happen there. People, talk to your accountants. Uh, yeah, that's why you. That's what we have you guys for. So, but underneath all of this is this theme of just accepting your fate. So that's what Harold's trying to do. It changes his alignment. He goes from neutral, law, lawful neutral. To, I don't know, what would you say he changes to? Probably chaotic neutral. Like, he's yeah. just out living his best life. Just like the, true neutral. He just kind of put the rules on pause. And he just took it clear that he took his vacation from work, and he's just experiencing life. But he's not, like, telling off his boss or anything. He's just, you know, he's still no. working. No, no, People no. like, That's... hey, nice sweater, Harold. You always mix up morality and lawfulness. You're killing me with that. <laughs> like just because, like he put the rules on pause. Like he stopped count. Like you said, stopped counting his brushstrokes. He stopped counting his steps. That, those are the rules that he lives his life by. That's the code by which his life is is organized. He yeah. put all of that aside for this duration, and that's the lawful part. He put that on pause. He went to chaotic for a while, and he just went out to experience the world without rules for a minute, and he seemed to enjoy himself. Okay, so. Now, now that we've established a romance between Harold, and, we've we've raised the stakes by by getting him together with Anna Pascal. Like he seems to be happy in his new life now. Before it was just kind of going on his mundane existence, and now he seems to be enjoying himself. Go watch that movie again. Everything in his apartment is beige. Everything, the lighting, the furniture, everything in there is. Yeah, there's beige. great production design on this yeah. movie. Okay, so. Now he's living in in Sleep Pod Two, and he's dating Anna, and things are and things are going good. And now he goes to see Professor Hilbert, and he hears on the television the voice of the narrator. 
Professor Hilpert just got done telling him that he's narrowed from everything and every discussion they've had, he's <laughs> narrowed down the possibility of who is writing his his story to seven people. And then Harold's like, wait, that's her. This was a good job on Dustin Hoffman, like because it's clear that he felt like like slighted or jilted, like because like, oh, well, she's not on my list. And I assumed that you would tell me that she was British. That would have helped a lot. <laughs> that would have helped. <laughs> okay, so now Harold knows her. Now, I want to ask you a, an, an, another accounting question, Josh. So he runs down to the – once he finds her that her name is Karen Eiffel, he runs down to her publisher and says, I need to talk to Karen Eiffel. And, of course, they're not going to give away her address or phone number to some rando that comes in off the street no matter what his crazy story is. I fully expected him to walk in there with the cloak and the authority of the IRS behind him because oh. they, they would have folded immediately. It's like, I am an auditor, an internal auditor from the IRS. I am looking for this person. They'd be like, oh, God, I don't want any of this. Here is her address and phone Okay, number. so I think the way that he abused his authority as a as a employee of the IRS was more consistent with his character alignment than what you just described. Yes, he went to the office. He looked up her name, found that she was in the files and that she had experienced an audit, which means that they had some paper files on her. He went down to the basement and found them and from that derived an address and a phone number. Which is more practical and probably what he should have done first, um, but also illegal and a gross use of his power. And he should have been fired and probably penalized for it. Okay. Okay. Good. I just want to make sure. I just want to get that on the record. So now it sets up this inevitable conclusion, this clashing of worlds where he goes down and they set up this really tense scene where she's sitting at the typewriter typing about his life as it's all happening in real time. And he's coming closer and closer to her and calls her on the phone. Yes, and like she types, and the phone rang, and then her phone rings, and she like got a little weirded out by it, and she, and she typed because okay, so the idea here being that if if she is narrating him trying to make this phone call, then she wrote in the she had to have written in the book that he is trying to call the person that is narrating his life, right? Right. Like she had to identify. Like, so it turns into this meta it breaks down if you try to think read the book. Well, right, it's this it's this meta snake eating its own tail because yeah. there's no reason for him to be making this phone call to anybody but the person that is trying to narrate his life, which means that it has to be a part of the book, which means that she's But narrating. she wouldn't have known. She wouldn't have known, she didn't know yet. But she didn't know that it was real. So she is right. writing a fictional story about a character who can hear the narrator of his own life and that's what's driving the story. I don't think it. I don't think it stands up to this kind of analysis. I yeah, don't but, think it does. But, but but it has to, because otherwise she wouldn't have paused or freaked out at all about her phone ringing when she typed and the phone rang. Except then she waited and it didn't ring again, and she told um, Penny not to answer it, and then she typed the phone rang again, and it immediately rang again, and then she waited, and then she typed the phone rang a third time, and then as soon as she hit the period key on the typewriter, it rang again. So this is where then she runs over in this frantic, out of her mind, like delusional panic, because that's, let's be clear. Somebody in this movie is having a mental breakdown. It's either Will Ferrell or it's Emma Thompson. We're not privy to who. Because (laughs) they both, so she answers the phone and the next scene is, is Harold showing up to talk to the writer. And she's obviously freaking out because. Yeah, well, she's had some time to think it over and think about the fact that she's written 10 books. And guess what happens at the end of every single one of those 10 books? Okay, Ben. The protagonist dies. This is the next part of the of the movie where like uh, uh, my my brain almost exploded. Because then they start talking about the end of the book. Because, like, you said I was going to die. She's like, I've already written it. Like, you've already written my death? And she's like, I haven't typed it yet. 
And it's this almost foregone conclusion between the two of them that she has this last portion of the book to write that is going to end in his death. And all I can think of is, you just discovered that whatever you type on that typewriter comes true. And you're worried about the end of your stupid book? Would you yeah. go over there and solve world hunger and solve <laughs> all the problems that anyone has ever had, yeah. please? Okay, I'm glad I'm glad you weren't in charge of deciding what to do at this point, Josh, because <laughs> you were thinking of a completely different magic system. This really the question that was being asked is what do you do if you know your own fate? Well, this is the thing is like he was then given the transcript of the book that she had written including the handwritten pages that she hadn't typed up yet that included his untimely demise. And he couldn't read it. He gave it to Dustin Hoffman. And my wife and I both had the same reaction because he, Dustin Hoffman, like part times as the, 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 the faculty lifeguard at the, uh-huh. at the college pool. And he shows up and he's like, I have the transcript, which says how I am going to die. And it is going to come true. Please, and I can't bring myself to read it. I can't bring myself to read it. Please read it for me. And he goes, uh-huh, sure. And grabs it and throws it on the ground behind him. And then like, Will Ferrell stands there for a second and my wife actually verbalized. She goes, so are you going to read it now or <laughs> am I going to come back later? Like, this is kind of important. You know what I mean? Yeah. But no. So he reads it and we, we've we come to trust Professor Professor Hilbert as, <laughs> as an analyst of literature. And, and he's like, this is a good this is a good book and this is a good ending. Harold, you've Harold, got to die. <laughs> Harold shows up in his office the next day and with like – just like ultra serious. And this is what I love this character for, because this is an uh-huh. objectively absurd situation. Okay. Oh, yeah. And he looks at him dead serious. No, there's no messing around with this. Harold, you have to die. Harold, this you is, have to die. This, this Literature is a ma- demands it. This is a masterpiece and you have to die. And I'm just, <laughs> and I just, I'm just dying laughing. Like, are you serious? Like, this is the guy who's like, and, 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 and Will Ferrell's crying, like, I don't want to die. I'm like, yeah, obviously he doesn't want to die. Like, I don't give a crap about your stupid book. And I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, I don't think anybody but Dustin Hoffman could have delivered the speech that could move my needle at all on this topic. Uh-huh. Like, I, like, like death, this person is going to die. All utility this person could deliver to the universe is going to be removed forever for no better reason than it is a book. And then Dustin Hoffman gives this speech about how everybody is going to die. We can't decide how it's going to happen, but you have the opportunity to actually make it mean something. And that, yes. like, uh, if you're looking at an analog meter of me, like, thinking die or not die, like, it actually budges a little bit. I'm like, ooh. I mean, that's really stupid, and this is an absurd situation <laughs> that makes no sense, but that was a really good argument. Did you notice the title of her novel? Death and Taxes. Yes, Death and Taxes by Karen Eiffel. He says, Harold, you have to die, but it's possibly the most important novel in her already stunning career. And Harold says, <laughs> you're asking me to knowingly face my death? And Professor Hilbert says, what if you had a way to die that was meaningful and poetic that would go on forever? That's the question that's being asked here. It's a good question. And then the movie becomes a bit solemn as it's approaching the end. Well, because it's a, like, we've established it's a tragedy. Like, we, yes, we know Harold's going to die. It's now established it's a tragedy. In a comedy, you get hitched. In a tragedy, somebody dies. <laughs> so we're headed towards the inevitable conclusion where this character we've come to know and love, Harold, dies. He's with Anna. Their last night together. He knows he's going to So he goes on and reads the novel. He agrees. He takes it back to Karen. 
Eiffel and says, you've got to write it. Like, uh, it's beautiful. It's wonderful. I, I need to die, like you said. Here's the chicken and egg argument. And then, like, this is this is what we become privy to as it plays out, right? The idea that he set his watch unbeknownst to him, he or little did he know that set him on the stretch. The idea was that it actually set his clock three minutes ahead of what the actual time was. So he showed Mm -hmm. up at the bus stop three minutes too early than he than otherwise he would have been, and he was able to prevent this kid, who we've never talked about them, but there was the bus driver and the kid. Yeah, they were kind of telling the bus driver and the kid's story all along. Yes, we didn't know why we kept seeing their stories in little snippets, and it, it felt like this weird interweaving of these disparate like. Plot it didn't threads. work for me, but I get it. That's that's one of the things that made me feel like it was, was an artsy movie, right? Uh-huh. And this kid, like, yeah, he's riding his bike and he's not very good at it, and he fell off in front of the in front of the bus. And Will Ferrell jumps out in front of him to grab the kid and throws him onto the sidewalk and gets hit by the bus, presumably right. to die, sacrificing himself in 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 what is it's almost like a mundanely heroic way. Does that make yes. sense? Yes, I think that's exactly what she was going for with that character. And mundanely heroic. Mundanely heroic. And here's the thing, though, and this is this is the part that's really going to pickle your brain, is would that kid have been hit and died by that bus if she hadn't written it that way? Like, it, like was he she decided, controlling the kid, too? Was she controlling the kid, too? Because Harold was there, and he he accepted the fact, like, I mean, that makes sense. If, if you if had the opportunity— she decided not to kill Harold, was she deciding to kill the kid instead? Is this a trolley problem, Josh? That's what I'm saying. Put yourself in Harold's position. Mm, because now, reading the, reading the story, think about from Harold's perspective. It's yes. like, I could sacrifice my life, moment for the but it would, podcast. It, I would die, but I would save a little kid. And honestly, only a monster would say no to that, right? Right. So the question that you have to ask is who's in control of the situation? Is this situation inevitable or is this the situation that she just concocted that makes a a satisfying conclusion to her story and somehow she is controlling all of reality with her typewriter? So they give a little bit of that. Penny comes into into, um, Karen Eiffel's apartment and there's like a smashed lamp on the floor and she walks back and finds Karen laying on the table and Penny's like, what is your deal? And Karen's like, I've killed uh, nine innocent people. Yeah, because she thinks that she like she's extrapolating everything that right. I've written has come true in real life. This is just the first time that it's ever like crossed that I've known me. about it. Yeah. yeah, again, and then it goes back to uh, this chicken and the egg argument I was talking about with the moral dilemma, and like Harold chooses the right thing; he's going to save the kid, and then he's like, yeah. And honestly, that was a really poetic death to have, just to be li- to be on the on the. Like from a literature perspective, like this person that's like discovering and, and and emerging into the world and realizing that his experience has been so limited by his own faculties this whole time, and like it could be so much more, and he's starting to get the most out of life, only to die, but in a way that makes you want to love him even more. Like, yeah, that's a wonderful work of art, but then she couldn't. She, the author, couldn't go through with it. Yeah, and Gosh, that was a beautiful description. It, and 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 Dustin Hoffman was correct when when he when she gave she came to Dustin Hoffman's office, gave him the new pages, and he read the ending, and he goes, "It's okay," because <laughs> she rewrote the ending not to kill Harold, but it turns out that he lives through it, and the only reason he didn't die was because some poor like, and she ties it in well. Yeah. Like the whole story she's been talking about this relationship between Harold and his watch, and then some absolute freak. Uh, of of circumstances makes this a uh, uh, piece of shrapnel from the watch save his life uh, a Tony Stark style 
with yeah. the, like <laughs> with like the arc reactor in his chest or whatever. So, and so Harold lives, and he gets to continue living this this wonderful life that he's been exposed to. But at what cost, Ben? At the cost of a great book becoming a mediocre book. And that's absolutely ridiculous that that's even on the table. That- oh, okay, I kind of I wondered that. I, I I paused the movie and I turned to my wife who has a degree in um, English, okay. studied literature, is a mass consumer of literature. I said, "Is this possible? Can you write a book that's six hundred pages long and is and is possibly a a career achievement masterpiece and turn it into a mediocre book by just changing the way the ending by a few words?" Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. You can you can do that because. Like even even watching the movie, it felt a little unsatisfying. Like you're happy that Harold got to live because you come to know him and you like him and stuff. But at the same time, in a very meta sense, it feels like a cop out. It feels like the Wayne's World mega happy ending, and it's mm. like ah, they just wanted to make everybody feel good walking out of the theater. If he had died, it would have been more impactful. There is no denying that. All right, you skipped one little moment. I want to rewind to okay the night before he dies. Harold has a dilemma because he's already accepted his fate, but he hasn't told Anna about it. And if he does, she probably won't accept it. She might even try to interfere. And he's decided. Well, she'll he probably think he's an he's is a wacko because right. who, who would believe any of this? Right. So he can't tell her. So they're laying in bed that night before, and he's just enjoying the last moments with her before he goes and gives his life for something greater. And he turns over to her and he rolls over and then he starts giving her tax advice. <laughs> Although it's like, I, he gets right up in her ear, real intimate. He goes, I have to tell you a secret. And she goes, what? And he goes, all the food you've been giving away, you can write off as a tax deduction as charitable donations, which is absolutely true. She could well, do Well, not just that, but he says it's equal to the amount that you were delinquent on your taxes and will take you out of audit status. <laughs> Right, and that, that, which is awesome. Like all she have to do is amend some of her tax returns. All she she's has, totally has to do is report all the the charity she gives to the homeless, and now she's not under audit anymore. <laughs> which is wonderful, and I love that. That's great. <laughs> okay. Well, Josh, this is one of my all time favorites. I love this movie. I love the characters. I love. I lo- every time I watch it, I'm just delighted by it. So, listeners, if you haven't seen Stranger Than Fiction, highly recommended. Give it a chance. I, I am big on, on meta-analysis, and I, I like when the characters try to break the fourth wall, which is one of the reasons Deadpool is one of my favorite comic book characters. That's neither here nor there. This movie was a really good exploration and made me think in ways about film and literature and storytelling in ways that I haven't in a very long time. Like, it's rare that you can see a movie that's both entertaining and thought-provoking, and I think you re- I think this is one of them. Cool. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed it. I didn't know. I thought you might enjoy a little bit of the counting stuff, but I'm glad it engaged you. I, I and uh, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Well, audience, if you were listening and you felt something, you, you had some thoughts you want to share. You like this movie, also, you want to engage in the discussion. You can go to our Facebook page and type your comments there, or you can go to our subreddit uh, and and join in on the discussion. If you like what we do, consider sharing us with a friend. If you like us, maybe your friends will like us too. If you really want to show us some love, consider taking your phone out of your pocket and giving us a good review on the podcast player of your choice. It is crazy the visibility we can get from that. And if you want me and Ben to talk about 20-year-old movies and the the societal impact that they've had from now until the end of time, consider becoming a patron on our Patreon page. And until next time, try to be a little less bad at magic. (laughs) 